This is Jocko Podcast number 327 with me, Jocko Willink. The President of the United States takes pleasure in presenting the Bronze Star Medal to Petty Officer Third Class Philip Francis Torney, United States Navy, for service as set forth in the following citation. For heroic achievements in connection with the unprovoked and unexpected armed attack on USS Liberty AGTR-5 in the Eastern Mediterranean on 8 June 1967. During the early afternoon hours, USS Liberty, while engaged in peaceful operations in international waters, was attacked without any warning by jet fighter aircraft and three motor torpedo boats. The Liberty was subjected to intense incendiary machine gun and rocket fire and was placed in extreme jeopardy by a torpedo hit below the waterline on the starboard side in the vicinity of the research compartment. Severe structural damage and extensive personnel casualties were incurred. Petty Officer Turney, serving as assistant on-scene leader in the Ford Repair Party, first assisted in organizing the evacuation of wounded personnel from the exposed weather decks. With complete disregard for his own personal safety, he continued to fearlessly expose himself to intense rocket and machine gun fire to move a firefighting team to the bridge. He then returned to the forward weather decks to ensure that no more wounded were still exposed before going below to maintain damage control conditions of compartments below the waterline. He remained below decks during the torpedo attack and immediately afterward assisted and directed emergency repairs to minimize further flooding and damage. His aggressiveness and coolness under fire was exceptionally inspirational leadership in an hour of awesome peril. Petty Officer Turney's initiative and courageous actions were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. Petty Officer Turney is authorized to wear the Combat V Distinguishing Device. And that citation reflects an obviously intense and dire situation for a U.S. naval ship, the USS Liberty, during a vicious and determined attack. What the citation does not mention is the state or the enemy force that is conducting the attack. And that is because the attack was conducted by our ally, by the state of Israel. And this incident, the attack on the USS Liberty, has been wrought with controversy as to how and why it happened. But there can be no controversy or no doubt about the courage and bravery of the sailors on the ship that day who suffered significant casualties but who fought to save their shipmates and their ship. And it is an honor to have three of those sailors with us here to share their experiences and their lessons learned. Phil Turney, Larry Bowen, and Joe Metters. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. It's an honor to have you all out here. I appreciate you traveling and getting out here. 
Thank you, sir. That's Thank you. Uh, about as good as it gets from an American hero as yourself, a sailor, SEAL, been through it, understands what battle's all about. When you have nothing to fight back, back with but only your will and your uh, guts to stay alive is uh, inspirational for all the crew. It was uh, all hands on deck. Regrettably, many of our shipmates lost their lives or were so severely wounded they had to be evacuated the next day. And we didn't get any help from our government. During the attack, after the attack, 18 hours later, we say uh, a cruiser or a destroyer, Maddox, come aboard, not the Maddox, but the... Uh, Massey. Mad, yeah, Massey. Come alongside in the USS Davis, and that was it. And uh, those guys come aboard our ship on whale boats, and uh, they were actually crying to see the devastation of what they did to us. Chaco, there was over 850 cannon rocket holes in our ship, over 5,000 armor-piercing bullets in our ship. They dropped napalm on the bridge of the ship, trying to burn us to pieces. They shot our life rafts off, uh, out. We only had three left. They, they shot them out of the water to ensure no more survivors. They sent troop-carrying uh, helicopters to finish us off, and for some reason, they, they didn't do it. I guess they got the word that, hey, the gig's up. Uh, and so we'll just call it a mistaken identity. And that's what everybody says. It was a mistake. Oh, we're so sorry. We say no to that. And uh, it was a deliberate, premeditated attack, premeditated attack by the people of uh, the Johnson administration. And the... Esco, I believe his name was uh, the ambassador, I mean the uh, premier or president of uh, Israel at that time. A small cabal of people did so much damage not only to us and our dead shipmates, but to America. This is just not our problem, it's America's problem. And Americans like you, this good gentleman over here and your whole staff are bringing it to light. And God bless you for that and it means the world to me and I know it does my shipmates. It's uh, very respectful and very honorable to you, sir. Thank you. Oh, man. Um, it's just the, the, the story is harrowing to hear. And, and you know, what, one of the things I want to go over today is the account that you've written of what you went through. Um, before we get to that, just to get a little background on, on all of you, um, just if maybe you could introduce yourselves, where you came from, maybe a quick note on how you ended up in the Navy. I mean, this is 1967, how you ended up in the Navy and, and really what your job was when you were on the Liberty. Let's yeah. let, let's start with you, Joe. Okay. Well, Joe, no, Larry. Oh, sorry. Let's start with you, Larry. All right. Yeah, I'm uh, Larry Bowen. I'm the current uh, Liberty Veterans Association president. Um, in 1965, during the, the height of the Vietnam War, um, I got drafted. And I didn't want to be boots on the ground over in Vietnam, so I went and talked with a Navy recruiter, and he says, go take the Army physical, and then we'll put you in the Navy. Um, I was 19 years old. I didn't know if I could trust him or not, but, um, you know, I went, I took the physical, I passed, and by the end of March, I was uh, active duty Navy going to Great Lakes Naval Training Center for boot camp. Um, I um, 
I became a cryptologic technician or communications technician shortly thereafter boot camp. Went to a school down in Pensacola, Florida, and um, got my first assignment to uh, Bremerhaven, Germany. And I thought this was a great tour. <laughs> I just, you know, can't beat this. And four months later, I get orders to the USS Liberty. So this was my, my third cruise that I was on uh, when, when we were reassigned to the Mediterranean for the uh, Six-Day War. And, and the, the mission of the Liberty, it's an interesting mission. It was really just collection of radio traffic from all over, all over whoever you were near. Right, right. And am I correct in saying that there was literally no weapons on the Liberty? Did they yeah. have any weapons at all? Well, we had four 50 caliber okay. machine guns, um, two forward, two aft, and um, then we had small arms, uh, which Phil and uh, Rick Amati were, uh, were trying to get into when we thought we were going to have to repel borders. But the, uh, the, the gun locker was, was secure, and they were using, they didn't have a key. So they were trying to break break the lock with a sledgehammer, so that they could get in and get small arms out in case we, you know, in case those um, helicopters with the troops on board tried to board us. Um, and like Phil said, the uh, for whatever reason they they stopped um, and you know asked whether or not we had any casualties and whether or not they could help us. Um, and uh, the skipper told him, basically, we don't need your help. Um, not in not in those terms, but uh, you know, he made it very clear that uh, we didn't want him. Yeah. Phil, how how'd you end up in the Navy? Uh, that's a good question. I I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't good in school. Uh, I dropped out of school in the seventh grade. Went to work for, for my dad. Where, where you, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Now I live on the western slope of Colorado. I got a 40-acre ranch there, me and my bride, and <laughs> Lisa sitting over there. Wonderful lady. Love her a lot. Uh, we've raised our kids, but uh, getting back to the Navy, I, I went to boot camp, and I was the, the most thrilled person you could ever imagine. Because I was 17 years old, I just turned 17 and joined, and uh, luckily I passed the test. But uh, I mean, uh, really, I was not very smart bookwise, and all of a sudden I get awarded to be uh, uh, educational petty officer. <laughs> I said, "How did I get this?" and uh, my peers took it good. They, we, we got along, and I'll be darned if I wasn't voted uh, outstanding recruit of my of my troop. And uh, that was done by my peers. I'll never forget that. Uh, a bunch of good guys, and they're as old as I am now, 40. <laughs> <laughs> what year was that? What year did you join? 64, 1964. Okay. And what was your job? Uh, my, my first job was... Uh, being a uh, boilerman and machinist mate, I was on different ships, the USS Monarchia, the USS Haleakala, Haleakala that I went overseas with to Vietnam. We would unload 
ammo to Constellation and other ships, and we would also pick up uh, bodies uh, that were flown uh, to one part or the other, and we'd take them back to Subic Bay because we had coolers for the ammo and stuff. And that was basically our, our deal for a couple of years. And then I got transferred to Liberty. I said, oh, God, this has got to be great. And what a good ship, though. Beautiful ship, good people, uh, enjoyable, uh, good skippers. Uh, <clears throat> I can't say enough about the, about the USS Liberty. And you're right. It was a – Abermore said it was like a giant lobster out in the sea. Nobody could misidentify that ship. So that's pretty much uh, – my naval career up to uh, the attack. Mm -hmm. Then I got transferred to USS Maddox, Tulsa Tonkin. So it's been an interesting ride. Uh, Joe, how'd you end up in the Navy? In 1966, I was in my second year of college. Didn't know what I wanted to do in my life. Didn't wasn't ready for graduation or anything like that, and. Uh, I didn't want to be in the Army and go to Vietnam, live in a foxhole for my uh, four years, so I decided to uh, join the Navy instead. So I went and joined, and then I went home and told my mom what I did, <laughs> and she about uh, had a fit. But in hindsight, she told me that it was the, probably the best idea that I had, the best thing I ever did. Went to boot camp in Great Lakes and uh, got assigned to a to the uh, drill team, which was fortunate for me. It was number number nine twelve. Fortunate for me and the rest of the guys because I don't think I did more than a hundred push-ups <laughs> during my time in in, in boot camp. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your what'd you rate? What I, was your rate? I was a signalman. I went from boot camp to uh, Class A uh, signalman school in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and then graduated from that and went to the Liberty, and I never could figure out why, since the Liberty steamed independently, and my rate, I had flashing light and semaphore between ships. What was I doing there? <laughs> Who were you going to talk to? Yeah, yeah. Really. That's an interesting thing about the Liberty. Because of its mission, it would just go out by itself. Like the normal Navy ships, they go out in a, in a group, in a, in a carrier battle group or an amphibious ready group where there's multiple ships. But you guys on the Liberty, you would just kind of sail around by yourselves. Exactly. And that's because of the mission. With uh, If we were in a group their communications would interfere with our ability to collect communications that, that we were trying to collect. So it was by design that we would go independently, typically off the west coast of Africa. Um, in fact, our first port on that last cruise was we, we pulled into Abidjan, and it was in May of 1967 when we got orders to go to Rota, Spain, to pick up supplies and, and some additional people. Mm -hmm. And we were going to the Eastern Med. Couldn't tell our folks or anything, you know, they said, hey, this is, this is all hush hush. Um, and at that time, I don't know that any of us knew what was going on in the Middle East. Uh, but Yeah, that's a good point. I know I, when I first got in the Navy and I did a couple deployments as a SEAL on a ship, I mean, there was no internet, so you really were isolated mm -hmm. in terms of what was going on in the world. So what was going on in the world at that time was that the, 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 the Israeli 
six day war was happening. Um, this is a war that took place from the fifth of June till the tenth of June. It was Israeli. It was Israel versus a bunch of Arab countries: Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, little elements of Lebanon in there, um, and the Israel. Israel had initiated, and there was a bunch of things that led up to this, but is, Israel had initiated the war with airstrikes on Egyptian and, and Syrian airfields. They'd, they'd pretty much wiped out the Egyptian Air Force. On the 6th of June, there was ground fighting that was taking place as the Israeli military pushed into the Sinai Peninsula. Um, on the 7th of June, they pushed even further into the Sinai. The, the Israeli Navy was kind of probing the Egyptian Navy. Um, there was Israeli missile boats, missile ships that were out there that engaged Egyptian shore batteries. So this is a, even though it's a short war, there's a lot happening in a pretty small area as well. Um, the Jordanians attacked and, and sent a lot of artillery into Jerusalem. Um... By the seventh, though, I mean Israeli, and this was just a couple days into it. Israel had gotten control over much of the West Bank. Eighth um, of June, these these things are c- continuing to happen. So I just wanted to kind of give some background as to what was happening when this event took place for you guys. So I was just talking about June eighth. You know, this is when these attacks are just continuing. This is in the midst of this war. Um, and and it, even though, it, like I said, it's short, but there's a lot of a lot of fighting going on. There's 20,000 Arab troops were killed in this short period of time. Israel lost uh, under a thousand, but that's you know still significant. So in the midst of all of that, um, this attack on your ship happens. And Phil, you you've got some personal accounts that you've written out, and these are just to me a great way of tracing how this how this went down from your perspective, Phil, and then you know, uh, Larry and Joe, you guys can give some input as well, but I just wanna read some of these accounts because you know, I, I always think when I write things down, they've, they come across a little bit clearer and it solidifies my memories. So here's what you said about the first day and how this whole thing kicked off, Phil. You say this, my job on the morning of June 8th was sound and security. I would make the rounds to ensure that everything on my checklist was in good condition, that the ship was watertight and ship shape as I reported hourly to the bridge. I did not see the first overflights by Israeli aircraft, but the other guys told me about them. We assumed that they were our friends, and knowing that they were merely confirming that we were an American ship caused our moods to further lighten. After lunch, a general quarters drill was conducted. Right after that, I had to accompany another engineer to the starboard gun mount on the forecastle on the forecastle, did I just say that? Yes, Maybe was, you just busted a, a, a damn Navy guy, totally messing that one up. You can edit that out. Uh, to fix the phone located there. David Skolak, am I saying that right? Yes. David Skolak was the other sailor I went with, and after I explained to him what needed to be done, his response was, no, no problem, Tony. I'll get working on her. This was about five minutes before the attack at two o'clock p.m. As we stood there, we discussed the fact that this would be the worst possible place to be in the event of an attack on the ship because the gun tub and the guy manning it would be taken out as the first priority. I said goodbye to Skolak and the gunner and made my way down the ladder to the main deck and my workstation 
in the ship fitter's shop. As I opened the hatch to go inside, I heard an order over the PA to test the motor whaleboat. Just moments later, I heard a huge explosion right next to the hatch I had just closed. My immediate thought was that the test had gone wrong and the motor whaleboat had blown up. So that's how this thing kicks off. I mean, it was it was a normal day. Were you guys were you guys able to were you guys tracking the war as it was happening? Were you guys could you hear explosions? Could you were you guys seeing fighting taking place? Were you seeing tracers in the sky at night and that kind of thing? No, we uh, we saw uh, smoke from the uh, Arish area where they were uh, uh, attacking the Egyptian forces, but we didn't hear anything mm-hmm. and no tracers. Did you guys feel? Safe and secure out there. I did. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, who was going to who was going to attack a flagged American ship? Uh, we thought if anybody was going to get it, it should be uh, the Arabs. Mm-hmm. Besides, we were told that we'd have uh, air cover in uh, thirty minutes if we were ever attacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The uh, anything else that you remember about the day before it kicked off? Um, that morning. I was setting a position down in Radio Research 1. I was an intercept operator. And I had picked up some traffic that was actually part of the the ground forces communicating back on uh, Tel Aviv. And um, my buddy, Bob Eisenberg, who was working in the processing and reporting center, we we went to, to chow together at lunchtime. And he told me that they were planning a big attack and and that, you know, it was a pro, prolonged kind of thing where they had, you know, three different uh, prongs to this attack, um, the jets strafing, the napalm, and the torpedo boats. But what Bob didn't tell me was who the target was. Apparently, they didn't spell that out in their communications. Um, but that was before we had our our practice general quarters drill. So I don't know if, if maybe Commander Lewis had sent word up to the skipper that, uh, hey, there's things are going to intensify here. Maybe we ought to do a drill. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were certainly indications in the comms that uh, – Something big was going to happen, hmm. and unfortunately, you know, we didn't know that it was us that they were targeting, um, because during the morning, these overflights that, that occurred, and they started early in the morning. I bet we had at least four or five overflights by Israeli aircraft, and we would send our photo recon team up to the bridge to take photographs. And and we knew. I mean, you could see the Star of David on the on the aircraft. So, in my mind, I felt pretty secure that uh, mm-hmm. our ally was going to cover us and and not not be the ones that was going to do the attacking. And um, <clears throat> Joe, anything else on that? Yeah, as a signalman, I was up on the top deck. That was it was an open deck, just has rails around it, not uh, not the. Uh, Steel plyo, steel uh, sidings around the, around the deck, and uh, I could see all of the uh, reconnaissance aircraft come and, and circle us in the morning. 
And on, uh, I served quartermaster watches, which I didn't like, but what's a guy to do? And so I was down in the pilot house, and uh, Larry and uh, Lloyd Painter was the officer of the deck, and he was, or a junior officer of the deck, I believe, and he was watching the uh, radar, surface search radar, and he spotted uh, the aircraft coming up uh, our starboard side, uh, very low to the deck because you know we didn't have any air search; it was just surface search. So they got slowly or, or quickly up our starboard side, turned immediately left and then it left again when they got uh, straight ahead of us and then started the attack. And the Israelis claim that they, they conducted a series of low and slow identification runs and I don't think uh, anybody would believe that uh, a screaming jet would, uh, nobody could see it, nobody could hear it on those, those identification runs. So they've, they've lied about it to, uh, since the outset. All right. Um, let's pick up, Phil, with your account after you hear this explosion. So you say, not realizing that a rocket had just exploded directly outside the hatch, I grabbed the handle and opened it once more to go out and investigate the trouble. I just barely put one foot outside when I felt myself grabbed by the shirt collar and violently jerked back inside. I turned and saw it was first class petty officer Dale Neese who ordered me to get back. We're under attack. The general quarters alarm was then sounded and I made my way to my duty station, which was which as one deck, which was one deck above the mess decks. After going down the ladder, I slipped and fell and found myself under trampling feet of sailors as they made their way to their stations. I rolled over to my right side to get out of their way and got on my feet and joined the stampede to get to my station as well. I got into battle dress and got my gear ready. Chief Thompson was the on scene leader. As soon as I arrived, he said he'd been hit. And I was leaving, and he was leaving to get medical care. Since I was assistant on scene leader, this meant I was in charge. It's all yours now, attorney, he said as he made his way down the passage. I responded back, hey, thanks a lot, chief, although I was not that thrilled about this ad hoc promotion. So it's just for people that haven't been in the Navy, tell us about General Quarters, what's going on? Right. Uh, General Quarters is uh, something. W- we did aboard that ship constantly. Even uh, I got on. I got aboard the Liberty when it, uh, it was just uh, commissioned, and it made one cruise, and I stayed on it for the, for the rest of them until the last one. But every captain I served under, and there was only two, uh, McGonagall was uh, very strict about uh, damage control, cleanliness. Uh, he evaluated everything you did, and. Uh, I think that really, really set us up to be, at least to try to be able to to save our ship and save our shipmates. But the training we received, uh, with the good graces of uh, God, uh, we were able to uh, to keep the ship afloat. And it just wasn't us, you know. It was uh, a higher power that that saved us. Nobody else came to help us, but the good Lord. And I believe that now, and I always will. I believed it then. You know, interesting, Jocko. You know, I thought when the uh, attack started and we didn't get any help, I thought, well, okay, this is World War Three, and th- these guys got better things to do than screw with us, uh, the, the American government, you know, because they, they're doing their own thing. That's what I really thought, because they wouldn't leave us out there alone that we were promised help. And I'll be darned, uh, yeah, uh, no help came. 
we were out there alone by ourselves, no armament, our ship is burning up, people all over the deck uh, on, on uh, sleeping, uh, trying to get into racks or whatever they could just to stay alive. It was, uh, it was uh, I can't say it, uh, it was real chaos, it was an organized chaos just do your job, mm-hmm. and uh, don't do anything else, but do your job. What was your job during general quarters? Damage control, so you were, fighting. So did you take over for, you were the damage control senior guy at this point? At, at that repair party, yes. Was it for that specific part of the ship, or yes. was it for the, okay. Uh, for that uh, part of the ship. Uh, the other damage controlman was uh, James Smith, and he was fighting fires and, and doing all I could. In fact, that's when uh, Spicer got killed. He was the postal clerk. He was manning a hose. That was his general quarters, drills, and his station to uh, fight fires. And Smitty had just got through the hatch, and then Spicer was hit. I might also add that Smitty uh, and I made third class together, E-4s, and uh, he stayed in for 27 years, and he came out a lieutenant commander. <laughs> Yeah, he was on a lot of different ships. Smitty's a great guy. He's a great hero. All these guys are heroes. They're, they're my, uh, my alter ego. I respect these guys because they help save everybody's lives, including mine. Without these people, I wouldn't be alive today. Joe, what did you have to do during general quarters? General quarters, uh, as a signalman, my uh, job was look out and look for ships to communicate with. Ha ha. <laughs> and so when, when the attack started... Um, Mama didn't raise no fools, and that signal bridge was totally, <laughs> totally open. So I stayed down in the pilot house where that was my uh, my workstation, basically, is uh, in the in the pilot house. And uh, occasionally, I would look out uh, on the port wing of the bridge and look up and make sure the flag was flying. Did that a couple times, and then I noticed it wasn't flying. So Frank Brown and I, Frank was uh, killed while he was on the helm. Frank Brown and I took holiday colors and ran it up on number four Port Hyatt, and I was up flying during the complete torpedo attack. And holiday colors is an even bigger flag That's than normal. The biggest flag we have. Seven by 13. <coughs> is that correct, Joe? That, that, something like <coughs> that, yeah. Seven by 13 feet. What about you, Larry? Where, where'd you go once general quarters kicked off? The... Uh like I said, I had a day watch that day, so I was down on Radio Research 1. When they sounded general quarters, I move up one deck to another position doing the same job with a cadre of other CTs. Or one of, like I was an R brancher, there was a T brancher in there. Um, we had an O brancher. What's the, what's the R branch, T branch, O branch? Okay. R brancher was a radioman. Okay. T brancher were were the, the technical electronic guys. Um, we had a maintenance guy in there. We also had a, a, an eye brancher, which is a linguist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we took positions one deck above where the torpedo hit. Um, and when, when the torpedo entered, we all got blown to the overhead, got concussions. That's probably when I got my shrapnel wounds. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until right after that that we were able to go out and start opening up the hatch and, and getting people out from the flooded compartment below. But uh, when when Phil mentioned that 
we had this, you know, 29 by 39 foot hole on the starboard side that killed 25 of our crew members that were down in the research spaces. Um, and, you know, one of our, our primary concerns was getting anyone who's still alive, getting them out of there and getting them up to safety. Uh, so as soon as we got the hatch open and people started coming out of the flooded compartment, I had a secondary job of going to the, the front door to our compartmented spaces and handing out life jackets to everybody so that uh, if we had to abandon ship, at least everybody would have a life preserver. Uh, and that was before we ended up at the end, after everybody got out of there, or if we thought everybody had gotten out of there, um, we dogged down the hatch and, and had to close up the area, secure it. Going back to this account um, from Phil once again, I started my new duties by determining whether all damage control personnel were accounted for, but found that several were still missing, which was not surprising considering the circumstances. The torrent of explosions I was hearing above and all around me had something to do with that, and the holes that begin appearing everywhere around us from the rocket and cannon fire were further evidence of the intensity of the attack. In the middle of the, this onslaught, I caught a piece of shrapnel four inches long in my right arm just above the elbow. I pulled it out, threw it on the deck, and moved everyone in my department to the main deck. Once there, I went to the same gun tub that I had visited earlier, but only saw a pile of human remains, blood, hunks of human flesh, body parts, and fragments of bone. Rick Ametti, am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. Rick yes, Ametti was there with me, and we knew there was no life to be saved, so we moved on. Throughout this time, machine gun bullets and rocket fire were raining down on us as we crouched down behind various structures, leaping from one position to another. So this is, I mean, there's just, this, this entire ship is just getting raked with machine gun fire, with rockets, with, with bullets. Um, these bullets you're talking about, they're, they're penetrating the skin of the ship and just going through, creating holes immediately. Uh, Armor-piercing bullets, you're exactly right, Jocko. And it was, uh, it, it was an attack that uh, there was no mercy. Uh, there was no uh, explanation in our mind because we didn't know really who was doing it. They were doing it with unmarked jet aircraft until we saw the torpedo boats. And they had the Star of David. I said, oh, God, they're here to help us. How little would we know? They fired five torpedoes at us. Five torpedoes, and only one of them hit. And it happened to hit an I-beam where we didn't take the full explosion. It was more of an outward deal. But as Larry was saying, 25 of America's most intelligent secret personnel in the world, all of them top secret, were instantly blown to bits, and uh, it, it's just something you can't describe to see your own shipmates like that, and you know they're down there. The ones that got killed on deck, we already put them in body bags, and the ones that were clinging to life, uh, Doc Kiefer took care of them. I, I helped in operations. Uh, all these other guys did what they could 
to help people. It was a, a unified ship, and it was two different crews aboard that ship, the Spooks and us. So we were the idiots, and these were the smart guys. And it's too bad. I, I mean that with all uh, due respect. Uh, believe me, all due respect. But th- these guys here took the brunt of the damage. And you know what, Jocko? They didn't, they didn't lose their duty stations. They could have run out of there. But they stayed there <clears throat> doing their duty and gave their lives for it. And it was uh, inspirational. It just, uh, you think about that, and then the, when the torpedo hit, the, the, the torpedo gunboats would come up alongside of us and fire at our firefighters, stretcher bearers, anybody on deck. They were that close shooting us, you know what I mean, out of us. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it never occurred to me, <clears throat> as I've said many times, that how another <clears throat> country or human being could do that to their own <clears throat> supposedly friends and get by with it. And then come back and say, have you casualties? Have you had any casualties? Flood all over the decks. Uh, Commander Castle was in one of the Israeli helicopters. He was uh, at his shade there in Israel. And he dropped uh, a card with his name on it. And on the back it says, have you casualties? And I thought to myself, my God, how could this, I mean, the guy's got to be able to see. And it just, uh, Everybody was astounded by that. The captain told to get the helicopter, the hell away from my ship, get it out of here now. And they did, and uh, we were all alone. Our country promised us help. We expected help. The jet aircraft were called back by Washington, McNamara, and LBJ, and all his cronies, uh, uh, including uh, Admiral uh, McCain. He was a uh, commanding uh, officer of European forces, Europe, and uh, he was a huge part of the cover-up. The Board of Inquiry only went seven days, mm-hmm. seven days it was wrapped up. It was all pre- predetermined what the outcome was going to be. Mistaken identity, they say they paid $6 million or $10 million or whatever, and the crew was compensated. They compensated uh, most of the crew 200 bucks for their their clothes or maybe their whatever but uh, the average was 200 bucks the most seriously guys that got wounded they deserved every penny they got but it wasn't nothing like they said it was and it was our money they were giving right back to us <laughs> so uh, Israel never put out a dime the United States paid for it all and they sold our ship for a measly uh, couple hundred thousand dollars they cut up razor blades to make sure the evidence was gone but uh they, did, they didn't count on us for 55 years telling you guys, hey, you're, you're, you're lying to the American public and you're not going to get by with it. That's why we're here now. America's too great, too great of a country that has served this nation. As you well know, you, you've been there. You know what it's all about. And uh, you didn't get, uh, no, nobody turned their back on you because you had backup, your own men. And you know, to the last man, it's it's not over till it's over. But it was like that way with us. It's not over till it's over. We're still alive. The ship didn't roll over. And uh, the next day they got there, and like I say, uh, Massey and the Davis, these guys who aboard the ship just in tears. It was, uh, they hated to see their own shipmates 
get get torn apart like that with no help. And coming to find out, you know, uh, I think the Navy did try to help us, but the, the government, the higher ups, would, wouldn't wouldn't come to our aid, and uh, it's pretty sad. This one pilot, he's in this film. Oh, by the way, I wanted to give you this, Jocko. I, I think you've seen this, haven't you? I have not seen that, no. Okay, this is uh, Sacrificing Liberty. Uh, go to sacrificingliberty.com, sacrificingliberty.com. This is a, a four-part series. It's one of the best series that's ever been done, and truthful. It's all about many survivors in this film telling you the truth, and it's my great honor and pleasure to give this to you, and I hope you you watch it and spread the word, Jocko. Thank you. Thank you. Um, one, one thing that should be noted about the uh, 25 men killed by the torpedo is that they probably would have survived the attack if LBJ hadn't recalled the aircraft. The aircraft were already in, in flight, probably halfway to the Liberty, and would have driven off the, uh, the torpedo attack if they had been allowed to continue. Um, just to give people some more, some more context as to what was actually happening for you guys, uh, your account, Phil, as this is taking place, you say this, dead bodies were littered everywhere, but there were also wounded bodies that we knew had to be found and saved if possible. Between volleys of bullets and rockets, we darted out from safe cover, grabbed the wounded men one at a time, dragged them across the deck and assisted them down the hatch. Others from down below took them from there and moved them to the mess halls where they could be treated. It took us at least 15 minutes to clear the decks of those who were still alive and could be saved, about 25 men altogether. One of the worst cases I saw was Tom, Tom Riley, a bosun's mate, who was on his back and bleeding from multiple wounds and was covered with gray paint, which might have saved his life since it became a giant bandage. So that's the that's kind of the situation that took place where you where that's what you received the bronze star for was that action going out into into the into the fire to try and recover wounded guys. You continue here after all the wounded had been recovered, I went to the log room, the location of damage control cent- central. I saw Ensign John D. Scott there, my superior officer who is burning documents, the standard procedure in US military. After briefing him and discussing the situation for a few minutes, he ordered me to return to the deck to further assess the damages and put out any fires that were still burning. On the way back, I saw many wounded men, bloody and moaning, begging me for help. But as I had no medical training, there was not much I could do to help relieve their pain. I got to the bridge and saw Commander McNoggle was badly wounded in the leg, but still in command. Rocket and cannon holes were everywhere and burning napalm was dripping through the holes into the bridge compartment. There were CO2 canisters that were not effective in fighting that kind of fire and I requested a team with water hoses, but that didn't work either since the fire hoses had been shot up just like everything else. I told the captain that I would return with some better equipment to fight the fires and he calmly replied, do what you can, sailor. He was always very professional and stoic even under these incredibly violent, surreal circumstances. So you have napalm dripping through the holes onto the bridge. I mean, that's just crazy to think about. It, it, it is crazy. Uh, na- napalm is, is a war crime. 
dropping it on, dropping it on us. They want they they want they, they couldn't shoot us up, so they tried to burn us up, and uh, the fires just basically burned out because we couldn't put them out. We didn't have the equipment. COT CO2 was all gone. Everything was been had been utilized. So it was uh, we could have gotten water. Uh, from the engine room, they they could have pumped us water, but uh, there was nothing uh, we could do with it because the hoses were ninety nine percent of them all are shot up. They're all gone. And you have that in interaction with uh, the captain, Captain McGonagall. He sounds like a stoic guy. One th- yeah. one thing I remember about Captain McGonagall, and I, I remember it distinctly, is when I was in the pilot house. That's where I stayed during ninety nine percent of the attack and bullets were flying and, and, and napalm and smoke and all that stuff, he was very calmly walking back and forth asking for a cup of coffee. He says, can I have a cup of coffee, please? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is, this is a, just chaos. It's chaos. But on our part, it's organized chaos because we right. were so well-trained. We knew what we were supposed to do. And we did it without thinking. That's what all the training was for. Mm-hmm. You say this, on, on my way to the bridge, I looked at my good friend Francis Brown, a third-class quartermaster who was helping steer the ship. He was one of my best friends on the ship, and we hung out together in better times, playing cards, drinking a few beers, and joking together. We just locked eyes and communicated silently that we might not make it through this one. I went off to find more CO2 canisters and I ran back towards the bridge, falling in the process which caused the CO2 canister to fly out of my hands and crash down the deck with a bang. As soon as I got up, I saw that, I saw what had caused me to slip and fall. It was blood on the deck that hadn't been there moments before when I left the bridge. It was my friend Francis Brown's blood who had caught a machine gun bullet or a piece of shrapnel in the back of his head and his blood was everywhere. His eyes were closed, but his face was swelled up like a balloon. It was something that no human being should ever have to see, especially when it's a good friend of yours. In a little while after going below deck and seeing more scenes like that, I looked, that looked like a slaughterhouse with a cacophony of wailing and desperation in the background. The wounded men kept begging me to help them, and it was frustrating for me not to be able to do that because I had to move them from the passageways and into the mess hall so they could get the medical attention they needed. Finally, the jet attack was over, and I went back to the top deck and then saw torpedo boats coming at us at a high rate of speed, and now I saw who it was. The star of David flags flying above these boats was quite a surprise, and at first I assumed they were coming to our rescue. The delusion only lasted a minute because I then saw the splash of several torpedoes that they dropped into the water as they headed towards us. Did you know they were torpedoes? I mean, did you identify? It seems like that's such a, if I would have seen Israeli boats, I would have thought, oh, they're friendly. Oh, something just went in the water. What could that be? Did you actually know they were torpedoes at that point? I, I did, Jocko, because I could see the uh, uh, trail in the water. Oh. I saw the two go aft. I don't know where the other one, they're fire, they say anywhere from five to six torpedoes. The general rule is five, but I mean, five or six, what difference does it make now? But uh, the two that went aft, I saw those. I didn't, I don't know where the other ones 
they could have been aft or forward. But I do know that one that one did hit, and uh, that's that's when the, the ship started listening badly to the starboard side, and it just went like this. Well, first the ship was picked up. This is when. So so before the torpedo hit, you say the four torpedoes launched almost simultaneously. They had. Had they hit us, the Liberty would have sunk immediately, and the rest of the world history would have been written quite differently. Those four had miraculously all missed. The fifth one was fired, and it was immediately obvious that it could not be outmaneuvered. The countdown began. We were warned to prepare for a torpedo hit, and we hunkered down in torpedo attack mode. This meant bending your knees and elbows, putting your hands against the bulkhead, and relaxing your neck. And all of that is made nearly impossible as your thoughts of imminent death take over your mind. So there was a time period where the, the fourth torpedo launched, or sorry, the fourth or fifth or whatever it was, there was one that you could tell that it was gonna hit you. Mm-hmm. Could yes, you sir. see, you could see it in the water coming your way? No, I, I couldn't see it. I was uh, below decks, one deck below the main deck. Were they counting it off on the one MC or something? Yes, the oh. cap, captain said, uh, uh, prepare for torpedo hit starboard side, and then we knew it's just a matter of time, and it hit. And I was thinking to myself, if if this ship goes down, I'm going to go down with it because I'm not going to get in the water and try to stay alive and let them guys shoot me in the water. I'd better go down with the ship, and that was my intention. I was going down, but the ship just it just miraculously stopped listing. Um. How, what are you thinking, uh, Larry, as this, as you're hearing the countdown comes, starboard side? That's yeah. got to be absolutely horrifying. It, it was, and we were internal to the ship. So, I mean, we had no place to run. We were had been sitting in our, our general quarters positions doing our job when he said, prepare for torpedo attack. And we got off our position, got ourselves up against the bulkhead, and squatted down and, and just braced yourself. But, you know, you're not, you're never really prepared for something like that. Um, you just, you don't know whether or not it's gonna hit right where you're at or somewhere else. We were above the water line, but um, we were right against the bulkhead that separated our comm spaces and our PNR spaces, which is, the area that the torpedo came into. So the, the explosion itself was deafening for us. And um, you know, like I said, we got blown to the overhead, got concussions, and probably the shrapnel wounds that, that we received after that. Um, but you immediately scramble to your feet to, to try and help your fellow shipmates that are down below, we didn't know how badly the the torpedo damaged that area, but when we opened up the hatch, we could tell, you know, I mean, the water was rising and, and people were scrambling to try and get up the ladder so that they could get out. Um, but, um, yeah, it's it was nerve-wracking, absolutely nerve-wracking. Uh, to say that we weren't scared to death, I think, would be an understatement. Joe, when you heard brace for torpedo impact, where were you? What were you thinking? I was on the uh, port wing of the bridge looking up to make sure the flag was flying. And uh, when I heard that brace for torpedo attack, I just hit the deck. 
and uh, you know, not knowing what a torpedo would do, uh, I just felt it hit, and I was lifted off the deck just an instant. Phil, you say in the account, when the explosion came, it was literally deafening. I'd been directly above the point where it hit, only about eight feet away, and the explosive percussion blew out my eardrums, an injury that never completely heals. We were all instantly airborne because the ship itself was picked up out of the water, and then it came back down and bounced back up and down a few more times, nearly capsizing in the process. The new moaning and groaning was not coming from the wounded men, but was now coming from the wounded ship as the rush of seawater flooded into the ship. Since the ship itself did not blow up, that meant the torpedo did not hit the engine room because that cold seawater hitting the boilers would have caused the ship to be cut in half and both halves would have gone to the bottom within minutes. Ensign Scott instructed me to determine where the torpedo had hit. So with Rick Ametti at my side, we went down to the communication spaces where the spooks worked. I banged on the steel door with my fire axe since I did not have a code to open it. And a voice told me that I was not authorized to enter the spaces. Rick and I told whoever was on the other side to go to hell, saying that we were authorized to go wherever we had to to keep the ship afloat. I told the person on the other side that if they did not open the door, I would beat it off its hinges with my axe. That's a crazy story. So these guys freaking the ship got hit with a torpedo, and you go open up this damn door, and they go, hey, you're not authorized. Yeah, it's, it, was, it was crazy. It was really crazy. And uh, when we got down there, uh, we went through the hatch that uh, he closed to make sure everything was watertight and everything, and... I, I grabbed the hatch. It, it had two different hatches, a, a big one and then a small scuttle hatch. I opened it up very slowly, and I could hear air coming out, so I knew it wasn't water. And I'll be darned if uh, two or three other guys were out there banging, trying to get out, and they, they came out. And uh, what a beautiful sight to see them alive. Yeah, you say suddenly the door opened. I went to scuttle the hatch to the scuttle hatch and turned it, then opened it very slowly. I heard air escaping in our direction, which meant that the compartment was not completely filled already, but was filling. Just as I opened it, I heard frantic banging on the other side, so I turned the wheel as fast as I could, and Sergeant Bruce Lockwood, United States Marine Corps, came scrambling out while pulling another sailor to safety as well. Ahmedi and I grabbed the two and yanked them out of the hole. Ensign Scott came up carrying a battle lantern and ordered me to give him my belt. I did as he asked, and then he used it to lower the lantern into the water to look and check for any more signs of life. After a few moments, we looked at each other, and he asked what I thought. Sir, I said, I think we had better seal her up. So that's one of those moments where, um, you know, as a leader, you got to make the hardest decision that a person could have to make, which is we don't know who else is down below. We know that this, this is filling up with water, and when we seal this hatch, we're sealing their fate. But in order to save the ship, that's the decision that you have to make. Absolutely. It was a very difficult decision, but it was uh, pretty instantaneous as soon as that decision was made, I mean, 
it was done. But we would periodically go back and check, listen, but it, it, was, all, it was all over. Those guys didn't have a chance. Uh, it was, uh, well, lucky enough, he got out and many more, but uh, it was just, I mean, uh, to think about 25 of your shipmates down there, and I didn't know how many got killed at that time down there, but to think that they, they went through that and uh, what, what we went through above deck, they didn't know what was going on below deck. They, they, they didn't have a clue. But uh, like I said earlier, these guys, they didn't abandon their duty stations. And what kind of courage does that take to stay below decks in the CT spaces on the starboard side and uh, take what, what they're going to get, and uh, they did. They're brave, brave, wonderful men. And that's why we're here. They're our dead shipmates. They can't speak, but we can speak for them, and we've been doing that forever, trying to get the truth out. But our government wants it sealed to stay sealed, and so does Israel. Now, again, it's, it's, not, it's not against the Jews. It's not against Americans. They just got fed lies, and we're here to Say, hey, we're eyewitnesses. Are you going to believe the Israeli version, the Board of Inquiry version, which is a total BS? Or are you going to believe eyewitnesses like us? Now, I think the American public is smart enough, especially with what's going on in the world now, to see that uh, how powerful uh, a government can be if they if they want to uh, silence you. It's gotten so bad that the U.S. Navy curator and the U.S. Navy historian wrote the official government version of the attack, and he based it entirely on the Israeli version. Wow. Well, more people are going to hear, hear this version than that version. How do you like that? <laughs> God bless you. Amen. Uh, going back to the account, now the torpedo boats began firing at us with machine guns, shooting anything that moved, including firefighters and stretcher bearers. One of the guys I was pulling to safety got hit right above the knee with a 50 caliber slug, causing an explosion of blood and bone. I took off my shirt and tied the sleeves around the top of his leg as tight as I could to stop the bleeding. We got him down to the mess decks and untied the tourniquet for just a few seconds so that they wouldn't be forced to amputate the leg later. Then we retied it before leaving the area. Ahmedi and I went back up to the main deck and saw the, that the gunners on the torpedo boats were now shooting at the ship on the waterline, aiming in the direction of the boilers and from merely 35 yards away. Clearly they were trying now to blow up the ship by hitting the boilers and causing a huge explosion that their last torpedo had failed to accomplish. Throughout the course of the torpedo boat attack, they circled the ship like vultures at as close as 100 feet to suggest that they might have missed the huge lettering on both sides of the bow in 10 foot high letters as well as the USS Liberty lettering on the stern seems impossible. And you're sitting there seeing these guys just lay into you with 50 caliber machine guns from 100 yards away. Yes, sir. And nothing to fight back with. But our will and, and uh, wits and uh, the, the pleasure of taking another breath is what kept us all going. And uh, pretty fortunate to be here, Jocko. I saw one of the torpedo boats a lot 
closer than 100 yards. One of them, I was on the Port Wingler Bridge. I spent a lot of time out there making sure the flag was flying. And I saw one of the torpedo boats sail very slowly up our port, port side. I didn't see him fire anything, but I did notice the, the uh, crew on the, uh, on the torpedo boat m- motion up to the uh, signal bridge, up to that area, so they could see the flag. And then it just sailed off and uh, continued the attack. How much time had passed between the f- initial strafing runs from the aircraft to the torpedo attack? And is this an hours gone by, two, two hours? Two hours, approximately two hours. Some people say more, some people say less. But to do that type of damage and uh, in, in a few moments, like the Israelis said, it just took a little while. They only said they had only three aircraft that attacked us, and there was probably 20 aircraft that attacked us to do that kind of damage in that short a time. It's just... Uh, when, when you think back, th- three airplanes can't carry the munitions it would take to put over 850 cannon rocket holes in the ship, drop napalm on us, and it just it doesn't make sense. So as all this is going on, you say all of the sounds of these machine guns and the sheer hell taking place might have been the reason why there was some controversy of whether Commander McGonagall ordered all crew prepare to abandon ship. But I heard that order probably because he felt that there was no possibility at that point we could save the ship. He was probably not aware yet that nearly all the lifeboats were either destroyed by rockets, gunfire, or napalm, that there were only three left, and I personally put one of them into the water as I watched all three inflate, only to see them immediately shot up. Two sank, but one of them was taken aboard one of the boats as a trophy. That capped the series of horrors I witnessed that day and told me as clearly as anything else that the purpose of the attack was not just to cripple the ship and take it out of commission so that it could not eavesdrop on communications, but to actually sink our ship. The act of destroying our lifeboats was an unmistakable sign that they wanted no survivors left to tell anyone what had happened. Lloyd Painter testified about that. He he witnessed the machine gunning of the life rafts, and he testified about that during the U.S. Navy Court of Inquiry. But if you get a copy of the Court of Inquiry, his testimony has been removed, not redacted, removed from the record. What are you thinking when you hear abandoned ship? What What are you thinking about, Larry? Did you hear that call? I did. I was um, had a secondary duty station at that point. Our uh, our fantail phone talker had taken uh, a rocket hit, was seriously wounded, and he was down in uh, the dispensary. I was back on the fantail as uh, as phone talker. I had a first class petty officer, Jeff Carpenter, saw me getting some fresh air while huddled behind a, a winch. And uh, he said, Bowen, go back and be the phone talker. And I saw the, the torpedo boats, and uh, when I heard the skipper say, you know, prepare to abandon ship, I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, I mean, this, this is it. You know, I mean, they're, they're right there. They're, they can shoot every one of us in the water. Um, you're trying to decide whether or not you, you've got a chance of 
jumping overboard and, and uh, swimming for it or going down with the ship like Phil talked about. And, of course, I stood my ground and, and waited. Um, but that was about the same time that I saw uh, unidentified aircraft approaching from the starboard side, and it was a helicopter. Um, and they were coming out at that point to find out whether or not we had any casualties, whether or not they could provide any kind of assistance. Um, and uh, so obviously we didn't have to abandon ship, but um, you know, you're scared to death again. You don't know, uh, you've got nowhere to run. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were like ducks in a barrel and uh, they just opened fire and you know, we we had no no way to defend ourselves. And and you guys mentioned this already, but just to just to reiterate, there was some heroic activity that took place for people for some of your shipmates to get onto the deck of the ship and string up a long wire antenna and send out an SOS message. And that actually made it to to Sixth Fleet, which was, you know, like I talked earlier about big groups of ships and you guys traveled solo, but normally the U.S. Navy travels in big groups of ships. So that was the Sixth Fleet is one of these big groups of ships, um, had an aircraft carrier and whatnot, and they actually received the SOS that you guys were in trouble, under attack. And, and talk me through about what you know about how that how the response the rescue response got shut down uh very good question uh we we didn't learn for quite a quite a while exactly why and what for but uh it just it just seemed like uh nobody really cared about us you know uh Nobody, including the president. He's the one that got us into this mess, LBJ, state LBJ, and his minions. But uh, I, I never thought I never thought that the greatest fighting force in the world would leave us behind. But they didn't. They, they wanted to come help us. That's why Captain Tully got fired. They took his command away because he immediately launched aircraft, not once but twice. And they so Captain Tully was someone on USS Saratoga. On the USS Saratoga, they received the signal that you all were in trouble, and he said, "Okay, we got sailors in trouble. We got U.S. Navy ship in trouble. We're going to go help them." And yes, he sir. launches aircraft to go help. Yes, before they even before they even uh, left the horizon of the ship, they were recalled back. Thanks to LBJ and McNamara, and. Uh, I believe that we were set up from the get-go. I don't know if it was a year before, six months before, or whatever. But Frontlet 615 uh, was all about 6-5. Uh, 6th of June, 15th of, I mean, yeah, 6th of uh, June on the 15th day the war was supposed to start. But they started early. That's why they rushed us out of, out of uh, Abidjan to get to the area just as fast as we could. I mean, that old ship was was doing as fast as it was shaking. We had, they took the governors off the engines and we were on our way, flying. <laughs> but uh, everybody was apprehensive. We, hell, we didn't even know from the radio signals, I mean, what was going on in the Middle East. But there was a war going on and here we go and we look out and here we are and 
sailing up and down the coast like we usually did in Africa. That was our only position in Africa, was just sail up and down the coast and collect intelligence like everybody else does. Uh, but uh, when we got on scene, and, and you could see, as Joe mentioned before, the black smoke coming up from, uh, from the uh, attacking forces, Israel's, going into uh, the Sinai. It was, uh, I felt, well, Jesus, man, I'd hate to be over there. I never knew it was coming to us. And uh, we were the intended target to sink. And in my view, and I think a lot of other guys do, is sink it, uh, blame it on uh, Nasser, and uh, World War Three would have broken out because uh, the Russian subs were there ready to, ready to nuke uh, Israel, and uh, the our government sent bombers to bomb uh, the Arab states, and they were recalled within seconds of a catastrophe of a nuclear war. Yeah, so I read that as well, um, that we had launched nuclear weapon-armed aircraft as a response to what was happening, and then those got recalled as well. Yes, sir. Exactly right. (sighs) If you you look at the the tactics used by the Israelis during the attack, they started with unmarked aircraft, or they jammed our radios on both U.S. Navy tactical and uh, international maritime distress frequencies. They used unmarked aircraft. They used napalm to drive the uh, ship's crew down below decks, brought in torpedo boats to, with six torpedoes total, luckily only one hit, and then heliborne assault troops. It was obvious to me and most people that their intention was to uh, sink the ship and kill all any survivors. Speaking of that, um, the the Hilo-born assault troops, here we go. Shortly after the boats left the scene, from far off in the distance but closing in fast came the unmistakable womp, womp, womp sound of a very large troop-carrying helicopter approaching the ship on the starboard side. Now the 1MC system blared, all ship's personnel prepare to rebel, repel borders. So now, after all other weapons were brought to bear on our ship and failed to sink her, we were about to be boarded by Marines armed with submachine guns after the only machine guns on the ship had been destroyed in the wave of first attacks. Even if we could get to them in time, the only other guns we had on the ship were small arms, pistols, and a couple shotguns that we might use to set up a last line of defense. Ahmedi and I tried to open the locker with our fire axes, since our master at arms, who was the only one with a key, was not to be found. Even after beating that lock nearly to pieces, we could not break it. The commandos on board the helicopter above appeared to be ready to rappel onto our ship, ready for close quarters combat with a bunch of defenseless, bedraggled sailors worn out from two hours of sustained attacks. It would have been a turkey shoot, but we were not too about to go down without a fight for our lives. Had they proceeded, they could have murdered the entire crew and then proceeded to use whatever explosives they had to guarantee the ship's destruction. As the helicopter hovered overhead, no more than 75 feet away, I locked eyes with one of the Marines, these are Israeli Marines, who was sitting on the floor of the helicopter. His legs were hanging out. He had one foot on the skid below as he waited for an order to rappel down to the ship's deck and finish us off. As I stood on the deck, 
of my bloody and battered ship, I thought about everything that had happened over the course of that afternoon, about my good friends, Francis Brown and David Skolak, and all the other men whose remains were strewn all over the ship. The only tool I had left was my middle finger, and I used it to let him know what I thought of him and the rest of his team. He simply gave me a smile and returned the gesture. And then they they backed off, right? That's they 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 didn't land. They right. they flew away. They just took they just took off, Jocko, and it was it was a, a victory for us. Our first victory of the whole mess mm-hmm. was them not coming aboard because they they could have easily. In fact, they could have come back that night and got us. And for some reason, they didn't do it because they could have gotten by with it very easily. Oh, okay, the ship broke apart. The Israelis said that uh, the Arabs did it. And uh, I think we better go get the Arabs. I think we better just go mm-hmm. get them. And that's, that was the whole, it was a land grab for Israel and, and a power grab for uh, LBGA to keep his war machine going in Vietnam. And it's not like you guys got help quickly. Um, you say this, it's 18 hours of hell. To call it a long night is a big understatement. None of us slept for two reasons. First, we were afraid of the dark, not like little kids, but rather because we knew that criminals prefer the cover of darkness when doing their dirty work. Those responsible for the previous day's attack might return to the scene of the crime to finish what they had failed to do earlier. Second, we didn't know if the ship would even stay together. Although we were not sure of the exact size of the hole in the starboard side, we knew that it was big, very big. There was a lot of work that would be needed just to keep the ship afloat and moving away from the danger zone. And with all the men killed or wounded, only a skeleton crew remained to do this. Those of us who did survive were glad of that, of course, but we all felt an enormous amount of survivor's guilt. Why me? Why us? We asked ourselves silently. Why had we been spared while others had not? The dead included two of my good friends, Francis Brown, who was shot in the head with a 50 caliber machine gun round and his brain splattered all over the bridge, and David Skolak, who had, who had been with just minutes before the attack. He was also caught in the machine gun fire and had been blown to pieces, too many to count. I went to the mess deck to see if I could help with the severely wounded men. As soon as I entered, the sheer mass of human suffering moved me so much to emotion that my knees got weak but I dared not let it show as I went from broken man to broken man asking what I could do to help him feel more comfortable. What was the total ship's crew? 294. Two-thirds of the crew was either wounded or dead. What were you doing throughout the night, Larry? Uh, A little bit of the same that Phil was just talking about. Went to the mess decks to, to help relieve the corpsman. We only had one ship's uh, officer, you know, or the skip, or... Uh, oh, the doctor, the, the ship's doc- doctor? Yeah, Dr. Kiefer, and uh, and then two corpsmen, a second-class and a third-class petty officer. So I'm an Eagle Scout. I had some first-aid background, uh, not that it was going to do much for s- some of the maimed bodies that, that were laying there in the mess decks. But like Phil said, you're you're there to try and comfort them, and you know just just talk to them, 
uh, I was actually, you know, <coughs> providing some kind of an ointment to their wounds. Um, you know, the corpsman would give me something and say, go, go, you know, wipe this wound here or whatever. Um, and, and so I was doing that. Um, didn't get any sleep that night. And I think uh, the main reason was I, I wanted to stay awake in case something happened and that, that bulkhead gave way because we would have had to abandon ship as quickly as we could. I still had my, my life vests on. Uh, I wasn't going to give that up, um, but um, I was I was not alone. I mean, there were a lot of us walking wounded. I was I was wounded, but I didn't realize that I had the shrapnel wounds in my thigh um, because your adrenaline is pumping so so fast that and you're you're taking care of others. So I had blood from trying to take care of. John Spicer, and uh, you know, working with some of the other woundeds, that my my dungarees were just kind of blood soaked, um, and I didn't find out until I don't know, I guess a day or two later, when one of the uh, doctors from one of the other ships was up in the dispensary and they were, you know, evaluating us to determine whether or not we had sustained any injuries, and of course I had a drop trowel and he said. How'd you get those, you know, scars on your leg there? I had shrapnel wounds. I said, I, I don't know. It must have been during the torpedo attack. Um, but as far as working through the night, uh, we did whatever we could to try and, you know, keep keep everyone calm. It wasn't chaotic. I mean, they weren't, you know, there might have been some moaning here and there, but it wasn't a lot of screaming and yelling or anything like that, everybody realized that, hey, they're, they're still alive and um, we're gonna get out of this. We kept thinking that we were gonna get some support, but uh, nothing ever came. What, what about you, Joe? What were you doing throughout that night? Throughout that night, as a signalman, I was up on the signal bridge looking for uh, ships. And uh, thinking if, someone might be coming to help you. Either way. <laughs> <laughs> and if I saw a light moving along in the sky, I don't care how high up it was, I always had my little Aldous flashing lamp and uh, I tried to signal it. I knew it was futile, but I had to try it because mm -hmm. all the other signal lights are in destroyed. Um. <clears throat> Going back to the account here from you, Phil. As I was doing this, Commander Philip Armstrong, the ship's executive officer, called my name. I thought that his condition was critical, but he was active and alert and seemingly in little pain. He asked me for a cigarette, so I lit one and put one in his mouth for him. He asked me many questions about the number of dead and wounded and the captain's condition while I heard the agony of the men all around us. I left him for a few minutes to try and find anything to help comfort the men, and by the time I returned to check on Commander Armstrong, to my great shock and sadness, I found that he had just died. Then I went to the wardroom, the mess hall for the officers. There I saw another one of my friends, Gary Blanchard, an enlisted seaman whose front showed no signs of wound, but he was lying in a puddle of his own blood that seemed to be getting bigger by the second. He asked me to remove his socks because his feet were on fire. I did as he asked. 
Then he asked if he was going to make it. I could do no more than shake my head no. I always hated myself for not lying to him or at least ignoring the question and changing the subject. But I did hope that my response allowed him the chance to make peace with his maker before the final curtain. These four men were among the nearly three dozen killed that day, many of whom I had never gotten a chance to know. I had met the ship's doctor. I I met the ship's only doctor there in the wardroom, Doctor Richard Kiefer. Am I saying that right? Kiefer. Kiefer. He came over and began to operate on Gary. However, it quickly became clear that it was too late. As soon as he opened him up. He then had to put stitches in him to hold him together before Doc moved on to his other numerous patients, all of whom desperately needed his attention. If anyone aboard that ship deserved the Congressional Medal of Honor, it was Doc Kiefer. As time went on, we went about our regular duties now modified because of the precarious condition of the ship. We were still unsure why we had been attacked and by whom. Israeli flags had been seen on at least one boat and the helicopters, but the thought that our friend and ally would do something so treacherous was unthinkable. But nothing was normal anymore, and that thought was the only possible explanation. The brutality, intensity, and long duration of the attack and the obvious fact that they wanted to kill us all and sink the ship had become quite clear to all of us. Why else would they destroy our only means of escape by shooting up our lifeboats? As I began to resume my regular duty, sounding security and damage control, I realized that my heroic shipmates had saved the ship that day by remaining at their posts while under the attack. I started making my usual rounds, which now included both bulkheads encompassing the CT spaces where the torpedo had hit. The walls, made from plate steel no more than an inch thick, if that, were sweaty from the cool ocean water on the other side. I could even hear the water sloshing around, knowing that if the bulkheads ever gave way, we would all be goners. There were cracks in the steel walls caused by the enormous pressure being exerted against them by the Mediterranean Sea. They were ballooning outward from that pressure and I feared that the cracks would get larger and larger until they finally would give way. They looked like they were alive and breathing as they heaved in and out with the movement of the ship and the pressure of the water. I got shivers standing in such close proximity to them, knowing that the only thing standing between me and my own death was a plate of steel that was ready to come crashing into the boiler room at any second. That thin steel wall was the only thing keeping the seawater from flooding into the interior of the ship, and if that happened, the ship would have immediately sunk from a huge explosion when the cold water hit the hot boilers. So you're, you're looking at the wall of the ship. You know on the other side of this wall, and these are like interior walls that aren't meant for the pressure of the external sea. No, sir. And you can see them bowing yes, from sir. the pressure. They're like balloons, just bowed out, with little cracks in the bottom on the sides. And water was coming through, not a lot. I mean, just uh, sweating, more or less sweating. But we, we got help, finally, from the USS uh, Davis and Massey, and uh, the Davis crew came aboard. 
and gave us great assistance and great help in uh, securing the bulkheads with uh, with uh, wood and plywood. It was a knee wall pressed up against the bulkhead, and you had to to, to check it out to every every half hour, forty five minutes. If if I wasn't on watch, my other shipmates would go through there and, and get under there like I did, and with a battle lantern and look. I mean, I thought to myself, boy, this is pretty stupid. What am I going to do if it, if, it, if it busts open now and I'm here looking for little cracks? Didn't make sense to me, but I had to do it. And your boilers are still running this whole time. Yes, sir. The right? boilers were never taken offline. One was taken offline, but we always had steam to the boilers. Always. At least one boiler. What, what direction were you sailing in? Do you even know? Where were you trying to go? North, I think. Pardon me? I mean, were you I, trying to get to the fleet? What were you trying to do? Yeah, I th- I think once the attack started, I, I think we we took a northerly course trying to get out of there. Uh, might have even been a, a northwesterly course um, trying to get away from those. Just get away from that whole area. Exactly. Um, but obviously we couldn't move fast enough to get away from, you know, screaming jets and uh, motor torpedo boats. I mean – Flank speed for us was what seventeen knots or eighteen <laughs> knots. I think we did twenty-one knots during the speed t- speed trial during yeah. Uh, oh. yeah, from Abidjan to Rota. Oh, okay. And so it was the USS Davis and the USS Massey that that eventually showed up. Were you there on this looking for them when they showed up? Oh yeah, I saw him come out of the morning mist. And Six sixteen hours later, how'd that feel? <laughs> uh, pissed. Like where were you? Mm-hmm. And what was the what was the look on the faces of the guys when they would they pull just pull alongside you guys? Yeah, one of them. Well, initially they sent boats, but I think the Davis actually tied up alongside us for a while. Yeah. And what were those? What were those sailors? They, they what were, were they uh, saying? They, they were uh, uh, in damage control, and they had more equipment than we did. And uh, to be quite honest, they had uh, more expertise. And they they were in shock, but they they knew what they were doing, and uh, God bless them for that. They helped us out a lot. But uh, they believe me, these guys were so good to us, and uh, it wasn't the Navy's fault. It was the, the higher ups, like I said before, because these guys, I mean, they felt bad. They could have been there. They could have helped us. The captain asked for uh, a, a escort, a DE or a destroyer. Uh, anything, but you're not a warship, you're an auxiliary ship, nobody's going to mess with you, and so they denied us even that, just to have an escort going into a war zone with an unarmed ship. Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. That's, that's why I know that, in, in my heart, and I think my shipmates probably agree too, that uh, uh, we were set up to have this exact thing happen. The only thing is, they couldn't sink us. They sure tried, but they couldn't do it. And that, uh, by the grace of God, we're here right now to, t- to be on your great show and to have your listeners take a look at this because we're not a cabal, we're not a conspiracy, we're not anything. We're just American citizens that served our country honorably to tell the truth. And we'll go, that, we'll go down that way to the last man standing. We're not going to take this. We, ha- we haven't taken it for so many years. Well, 
Joe was the first president of the LVA. He was in uh, Saudi Arabia. He worked for Ramco. And uh, he was a president long distance. Remember that, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, was, uh, it was pretty amazing, but uh, uh, I just give all, all the credit to the great crew, these wonderful men here. And uh, I love them all. And I'm proud to be an American. But I got to say one thing. At, at this point in my life, Jocko, I'm not, I've always been proud of my country. Not, I'm not right now because I'm ashamed of what's going on, the leadership. And uh, it, it reminds me of uh, back in 67, the same type of leadership. Council culture just didn't start with, with these people. It started a long time ago in 67. They tried to cancel us out, but they couldn't do it. And uh, I've had threats in my life, you know. I've had a lot of things happen. Me and my wife were in San Diego visiting and I was in a, the lounge having a drink with my wife, getting ready to go, go get something to eat. And this guy sat beside me, and uh, he says, uh, oh, you're aboard the Liberty. And I said, uh, hmm, how'd you know that? And he began to tell me the whole story. And the best thing for me to do is just shut up. I said, uh, what? He says, listen, I work for the Mossad. I'm a Mossad agent. And you, you better shut up. My wife was there, too. And boy, did she give him hell. They had to get security to, to get us up to our room. But uh, I, asked, I asked the bartender, I said, who is the guy? Well, he, he's been coming here the last couple of days, and he said he was a doctor. That's what he told me, too. He had a great big watch on. I told him, get the watch out of my face. Are you taking pictures of me or whatever you're doing? And uh, he says, probably. But I, I gave you another warning, and that's when my wife chimed in. And I think she gave me more heck than I did. Because uh, she said she's a fighter too, but uh, it was uh, it was amazing. And how did they find out who we were in San Diego? Either by my credit cards or phone or something. I don't know, but they 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 found us and gave me a stern warning. And that was uh, 13 years ago when that happened. One <clears throat> thing should be said about the. Uh, Six Fleet personnel, their radioman didn't come out of this unscathed because they listened to our calls for help after the aircraft were recalled, knowing that those aircraft were recalled, and it and it had to affect them because we were still calling for help. Um, I mean, just just in case anyone is anyone doesn't have the impression of what happened on on this ship let, let me go back to the account here as this as this sort of wraps up one of your final duties phil you say rick ametti and i found some undamaged fire hoses and began hosing off the deck with a suicide nozzle that sprayed water in very concentrated high pressure stream it took both of us to handle this hose because it was like a giant python and one man could not do it alone it was the most gruesome, heartbreaking task either of us had ever done because every piece of flesh was the remains of our fellow sailors, many of whom were friends. As Amedi and I went about this ungodly task, tears streamed down our faces, and I prayed to God for forgiveness for how we were forced to treat the remains of these men. In the gun tubs, we found a shoe with a foot still in it, which we put aside for collection. 
Many of the blood stains would not come off, even with that special hose, because the previous day's intense heat, not just baking under the sun's heat, but from the rockets and napalm that had been dropped on the ship by the attacking aircraft. We found out the hard way how hot this brutal weapon can burn, as hot as 2,200 degrees Fahrenheit. So, um, the Davis, they also start taking some of your wounded off, right? Is that correct? Uh, I'm not very clear on that, Jocko, for sure, but I, I, I do know that uh, the most seriously wounded uh, were airlifted off the ship from the USS America, uh, and uh, the, the, the Davis and the Massey were... I guess more or less there to to uh, to help us out, and but I don't think there's any evacuees that went to the Davis. You know, it's no, a bus. I went to the uh, Little Rock. Yeah, the motor oil boat. That's what I thought. So they, but they did start pulling the the wounded guys off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then you guys end up um, sailing to Malta. That's the that's the next. Thing that you do. I mean, you get to the ship, stays underway. You're, and again, you got some good stuff in your account. I mean, just that, just that trip is no easy trip because the walls are could collapse at any moment. Um, and it's not the closest. Oh, it's not the closest spot. No. Where would have been the closest spot? What would uh, Crete? Crete. 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 Yeah. Why'd they pick Malta? Hoping we'd sink. <laughs> if it's further away, doing about four four knots. Five knots tops. How many days did it take you to get there? Oh my. Seven, I think. Six or seven days, yeah. yeah. Seven days. Yeah, it was. Uh, and then, uh, I, I'm, probably, you probably already know this, but that uh, Admiral Kidd, I think that's another reason they sent us to Malta, because he wanted to brief us all and get our account of what, what went on. Yeah, I've got, I've got your account of how that goes down. That's, that's very interesting. And, and actually, I got another account from Ron Kukal, am I saying that right? Yes, Ron, Ron Kukal, and he's one of the survivors. He's actually the guy that helped put this interview together. He, he did. Um, he's got a book that's called Remember the Liberty that he wrote, um, and he had this to say about the events once you guys arrived in Malta. He said, on arrival in Malta, we were headed straight to dry dock, and once we were in, it was up to the great crew at Malta to get us set up for repairs and whatever else needed to be done. What never occurred to me was the grisly duties that we were that were about to be laid squarely on our shoulders. In my case, as a senior enlisted man on the crew, I was put in charge of recovery and identification. I will admit I tried to talk my way out of this one, but I was told those were my orders and I followed them. That hour arrived sooner than I wanted as we made our way down to the dark hole below. No one knew what to expect and I was extremely apprehensive about what we could see. For 48 years, I've said little about what I saw because I wanted to spare the loved ones of these men that cruelty if I could. With the writing of this book and in the distance in years, I think I can at least say that the scene could compare to a wrecking yard of autos. 
but these were human body parts strewn everywhere, carnage that escapes description with mere words. And there were more bodies that were down below which were brought to me to try and identify. Those bodies were wedged between steam pipes and in places that a body wouldn't fit. If it's any consolation to the loved ones of those men, know that they never knew what had hit them. They couldn't have. It had to have been instantaneous. And then, as you mentioned, Phil, once you're in Malta, it's time for this investigation. This investigation is being run by Admiral Isaac Kidd. Actually, Admiral Isaac Kidd Jr. Yes, sir. The, the, the senior Isaac Kidd, Admiral Isaac Kidd, was killed in Pearl Harbor. Yes, sir. And his son, Jr., was commissioned 12 days after his father was killed, and he served in Europe in the Pacific theaters in World War II. And he was the guy in charge of this Liberty Incident Inquiry. And as you already mentioned, I mean, you'd think an an incident like this, just to gather the proper information would take months and then to go through it all would take months, you know, if not years to get through it all. Uh, They get this whole thing done in seven days. Yes, sir. And, you know, Dr. Kiefer very eloquently said, why would the... United States government take on faith what the Israelis said when they muzzled us, eyewitnesses, never to say a word about it. Or consequences could be very, very, very severe. Prison or worse. We all know what uh, worse meant. I was told that directly by Admiral Kidd. That's the strange thing. So Admiral Kidd shows up, tanks off his rank. Yes, sir. And what's he, a two-star at this point? Uh... Yeah, he was a, a rear, was rear he? admiral. Yeah. yeah. So, so he's a two-star admiral, takes off his rank and sits, sits you guys down, asks you all a bunch of questions. Hey, did you see any markings on the recon aircraft? Did you, did you see any markings on the other aircraft? Did you see the torpedo bar- boats? Were there any markings on the torpedo boats? Did you see the, the, did you see the torpedo boat, boats machine gunning the life rafts? Are you sure the U.S. flag was flying over the ship? So he's asking you all these questions. And, and at the end of asking all these questions, he puts his stars back on and he says, okay, fellas, now I'm an admiral again and I want each and every one of you to understand something. We are talking about national security here, not your personal feelings, not what you did or did not do. I could really give a shit about any of that. You listen to me once because this is the only time you're ever going to hear it. You are never to repeat what you just told me to anyone. Not your mother, your father, your wife, anyone, including your shipmates. You are not to discuss this with anyone, and especially, especially not with the media, or you will end up in prison or worse. You know, I I took that to heart. When I first met Lisa, be 39 years we got married ago, got married in June. And I never told her I was in the military at all until I read an article by Stan White. Uh, he was a master chief aboard the ship. And I, it was like an ocean of relief came out to me. I, I said, wow, somebody else is saying something. Now I can start talking. And little did I know, these guys here had just set up the USS Liberty Veterans Association, which I became a part of as soon as I found out you guys were 
we're uh, you know getting together, and uh, it's been a constant battle ever since. We we were in the Rose Garden. Uh, w. H. Bush was the president, and uh, we were out there for hours in scorching heat. You know how it is in D.C. What were you doing there? Were you invited to be we were there to as the as vets of the Liberty to meet the president of the United States? And he stiffed us. He wouldn't talk to us. So he sent out Brent Scowcroft and uh, uh, Sununu. Yeah, Sununu. What, what year was it that that article came out that you said? Or what year did you guys start start talking about what had actually happened? When Jim Annis's book came out, uh, Assault on the Liberty. And, and what year was that? 79. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys just kept it to yourself for whatever, 12 or 13 years, not saying anything. Yeah, who who would we talk to? I mean, everybody was uh, spread out all over the country. We didn't know uh, where any of the survivors were. Did you make any sense of it in your own minds? Did you think to yourself, well, I could see why they're trying to do this. They don't want to have, you know, bad relations with Israel. They're trying to cover up the the – the fact that the American government was somehow involved with this. I mean, what were you thinking in your own minds? I was thinking that uh, they'd already held an investigation and and uh, everything was copacetic. But uh, come to find out, they have never investigated it. matter of fact, the Court of Inquiry was ordered by LBJ to have a finding of fact, the very first one, that the attack was a case of mistaken identity. That's what LBJ said? Yes, that's what uh, Ward Boston said. Okay. He, was, he was ordered. He was a legal advisor. Yeah, I got a quote here from Ward Boston, who's the chief legal counsel for the U.S. Navy Court of Inquiry. And he says, quote, I know from personal conversations I had with Admiral Kidd, president of the Court of Inquiry, that President Lyndon Johnson and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara ordered him to conclude that the attack was a case of mistaken identity, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, end quote. And that's the chief legal counsel mm-hmm. to the Navy Court of Inquiry, to the Liberty Incident. This isn't somebody that's jumping in from some other, you know, some other realm to try and give his opinion. Well, uh, you know, uh, Ward Boston was uh, a good man, a, a very brave man for coming out and, and setting the record straight. But... Uh, there were there were people before him uh, trying to help us, you know, all all around. But when A.J. Crystal wrote a book called The Liberty Incident, that set him on fire because it was a book of lies, and he he couldn't take it anymore. He says, I, "I'm gonna stick up for these guys and tell the truth." What did the book bu- What did the book The Liberty Incident say? It said that uh, it was an Israeli talking point and an American talking point. It was a mistaken identity. We're nothing but a, a, di- a bunch of disheartened fools that. Uh, have got an axe to grind. Our only axe to grind is to, to, to tell the truth. That's why we're here. We're not here to, to lie or uh, fabricate or anything like that. We live through it, and we don't want anybody else to go through that ever again and have their government abandon them. You know, same thing in Afghanistan. They, they left everybody there, and all those, there's 13 people that got, 13 American heroes that got slaughtered for what? Forgotten. And, uh, that was us. We were forgotten. It's it's done. It's too late. Larry, when did you start hearing that people were starting to tell the truth about the situation? Uh, again, it was a Jim Ennis book, Assault on the Liberty. Um, I read the book, but I was still on active duty, and I still had my top secret clearance. And so 
I wasn't saying anything to anybody. And as it turns out, after I retired from the Navy in 1986, I, I went to work as a defense contractor still supporting the National Security Agency, so I still needed my clearances, so I never said anything. I never really started talking about the liberty to my family or, or anyone else until I started going through PTSD psychiatric you know, treatments. Um, so I knew that there were other books out I know that Phil had two or three books that he wrote. Um, the one that you referenced earlier about uh, Ron Kukul. Mm -hmm. um, Phil's also a contributor to that book. And Ernie Gallo is, is another member of the crew that helped, uh, you know, with that. How long, did, how long were you in the Navy for? 21 years. Did you get a purple heart for being wounded on I, the... I did. And I did. what would you tell people when some other, you know, you're out, you're in your dress whites for whatever reason, and, you know, 1975, there's guys were in Vietnam, sure, some, you know, guys, there's some, some corpsmen, some medics, some pilots, some aviators might have got purple hearts, some, some guys from the Sea Wolves or something, but there's not a lot of Navy guys running around in 1975, 1980, 1985 that had purple hearts. What did you say to somebody when they said, hey, where'd you get that Purple Heart from? I was on the USS Liberty in 1967 when we were attacked. And, um, you know, I got it for shrapnel wounds. Um, and that was about it. You know, and, it. And no one would ever pry and say, you know, what the hell happened or what was going on? How, how'd that occur? Oh, I, I think a couple of times, you know, people would try and, and pry more out of me. And... Um, I just wouldn't say anything. I said, I just can't talk about it. Um, and again, it was because of the threat of fines and imprisonment if we ever spoke about it. Um, being, being a communications technician, all of my work that I did was secret, so trying to keep a secret wasn't, wasn't something that was new to me. Mm -hmm. um, I just suppressed it to the point that um, it was building up inside me, and finally I had to go to counseling. Did you, how, do you still have your clearance? No. When I, when I retired in 2008, I relinquished my, my clearance. They didn't take it away? They just, you relinquished it? Uh, I, just, I just decided I was 62 years old. <laughs> it's, it's time to uh, pull the plug. And, uh, As you were serving in the Navy— now it's 1975, now it's 1979, now it's 1982. And you know that, you know, you know you got ordered to not say anything, which look, I mean, there's things that I've done which I'm not allowed to talk about. Right. And you realize, okay, I might not know everything about the situation, but I know I'm not allowed to talk about it, but I'm sure that there's a reason for that that makes sense and I get it. You know, was part of you thinking, you know, we, we this is not this 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 didn't happen the way they say it happened. This seems like they're covering it up, not for any reasons of national security, but for other reasons. Yes, I mean, I because I work for the National Security Agency, they actually did a report in 1980 that was classified top secret, um, and it was their recap of what happened to the USS Liberty. 
I had a copy of that report on my desk until I retired from the Navy in, in 1986. Um, and then I had to turn it back in because it was, you know. Was but, that report accurate? No, no. <coughs> and I mean, there was information that I knew should have been in there that had to deal with communications that, that didn't reflect those communications. And the thing that they were trying to report more than anything else was a lack <coughs> of communications that occurred resulting from <coughs> this 100-mile um, free zone, I guess, that Israel had declared no, no <coughs> ship should enter into that 100-mile zone off, off the coast of the Sinai. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently our uh, <coughs> naval attache in, um, in Israel had told them that we don't have any Navy ships there. Sixth Fleet confirmed that they didn't have any any naval ships there, and that's you know a problem with us traveling by ourselves. They um, they didn't recognize that we were over there, or they conveniently forgot that we were there. Right. But there was communications that were supposed to have been sent to us, telling us to move back off the coast, and we never received those communications. And so that, that's more about what this report from NSA said, and it didn't talk about the other intercepts that had, you know, the aircraft talking to ground controller, talking about the target, talking about seeing the American flag, and, um, you know, I don't know why that didn't come out until later, but we kept doing uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, trying to get a lot of this documentation <coughs> back out in public so mm -hmm. that the truth could be told. So, Joe, what did you do after the incident took place? How much longer were you in the Navy for? Did you stay in? What did you do? I got out. Uh, I was transferred off the Liberty onto the USS Sylvania, so it was AFS-2 fast combat store ship and the home boarded in uh, in Naples, Italy and it was a very active signal bridge one of the most active in the, in the Sixth Fleet at the time and so I go from signalman school to a ship that doesn't need signalman to a ship that has a very very intense uh, signalman but uh, after that I went, uh, I got out Halloween on uh, 69. And, and same question to you. I mean, were you thinking to yourself, was one of the reasons you got out because you're thinking, hey, this crazy thing just happened to me. I lost so many of my friends, and now I'm told I can never talk about it again? Did that impact the way you thought about your career? Interesting thing about that. Um, on the Sylvania, there was a, uh, a uh, career counselor, and every time you were getting short, he would call you into his office and give you a long spiel about why you should ship over and stay in the Navy. So he didn't know, he didn't know me personally and didn't know my history. So he called me into his office and sat down, and he says, Well, Metters, you're getting short. You're thinking about shipping over? And I said, No. And he, and he said, Why? He says, Because I was on the Liberty. And he said, Goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, Roger that. Phil, what was the rest of your career like? 
Well, I, I uh, joined February the 6th and got out uh, December the uh, 64, and I got out de December the 12th, 1967. I stayed out for a couple of years, and I wasn't going to ship over either because I, I was done. But then, uh, you know, here I'm, I'm 22 then or 23, and I say, man, I'm not, my life's not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. So I re-enlisted and went back in the Navy, and I got stationed aboard the USS Maddox, DD-731, uh, that was in the Tonkin, Gulf Tonkin. That's how the Vietnam War started. And some of the uh, original crewmates were still on there. They said, hey, Turney, that, that never happened. That's all BS. It, it, it was a pretext for war that Johnson dreamed up. And it, it turned right back around to uh, the USS Liberty, uh, another pretext, phony, outcome to, to, to keep his war machine going in Vietnam, and it's a, a land grab for Israel and a, 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 a permanent foothold in the, in the area for the United States. So you, when you got to the Maddox, and, and they're talking about those attacks, those you know uh, supposed attacks, and the guys would say, yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah, no, that didn't happen, that's the way it worked. And uh, I, I told a couple of guys aboard there, you know, my situation and my uh, uh, division officer, he, he read my file. And this is when I was getting out. And he says, hey, man, uh, maybe you should get out. Because I, I, was, uh, I, uh, I wasn't really into it. But I thought, well, maybe I could tough it out. You know, made a few bucks uh, while I was in the service. But... Uh, that's how I was feeding my family. Mm -hmm. was. With your luck, you'd be transferred to the Stark and then the Colt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The um, <laughs> as this cover as this cover up continues, I got another statement here. This is from this is from Lieutenant General Marshall S. Carter, director of the NSA, under whose authority the Liberty was operating. He said, "Couldn't be anything else but deliberate." There's just no way you could have a series of circumstances that would justify this being an accident. You know, and as my friend Daryl Cooper pointed out, when this attack happened, once in international law, Geneva Convention, when a, when a naval vessel gets disabled, you're then, as the attacker, responsible for trying to help lend aid to that ship and certainly to the sailors that are, that are in the water, if they're in the water. You're not supposed to be gunning up their lifeboats and strafing their their the decks of their ship as they're already a disabled vessel. So this is just wrong in every circumstance. And you know, I was talking before we started recording this. You know, I've been in friendly fire incidents before, um, in pretty bad ones where people died, and I I totally understand that there is the fog of war that these things happen that that that. You make mistakes and someone sees something that they didn't think they saw or someone saw something that they didn't think they see. There, there's all things that, there's a lot of chaos that happens. But to have that happen for hours upon hours when there's an American flag flying, you know, and, and, and you know, Joe, that was, again, this is something else we were joking about when we were off air. You know, since you were a signalman with no other ships to signal to, you really had one job and that was to know what was flying what the ship was flying and you know 100 percent 
that 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 the American flag was clearly visible, and that you actually ended up raising an even bigger American flag. That's right. You know, I, I, I might add to that, uh, Jocko. The uh, Israeli war room <clears throat> had us plotted on their map as American and friendly. They said they changed the watch and inadvertently forgot we were there and took us off their war table. I mean, come on, man. Don't, you know, when you, when you change watches, you, you yeah. inform everybody of what's going on, and they just uh, took it all away, and that <clears throat> that's, uh, still irritates me. I know it does these guys, too. Yeah, and by the way, there's no more important piece of information on the battlefield than where your friendly forces are. Yes, sir. So this isn't like we, oh, well, whatever, you know, we're just going to pull some people off the board. No, that's, that's a sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and people focus on the flying of the flag. Was it flying? Was it not flying? But that's really, that's not, that's just one of the ways of identifying a ship. You know, there's the color, the structure, uh, how the, the deck is laid out. You know the the uh, masts and all that stuff, and they claim that they approached within a thousand yards. And misidentified us as a forty-year-old uh, black-hulled, rusted-out Egyptian tramp steamer, half our size. <sighs> J.Q. Tony Hart, then a chief petty officer assigned to a U.S. Navy relay station in Morocco that handled communications between Washington and the Sixth Fleet. Remembered listening as Defense Secretary Robert McNamara in Washington ordered Rear Admiral Lawrence Geis, commander of the America's Carrier Battle Group, to bring the jets home. When Geis protested that the Liberty was under attack and needed help, Hart said McNamara retorted that President Johnson is not going to go to war or embarrass an American ally over a few sailors, end quote. That's a violation of Article 99 of the UCMJ. It is indeed. It is indeed. Yes. Article 99 of the UCMJ. You have to go out and attack the enemy, and you have to go out and support your other troops. That's Article 99. Yes, sir. Statement by CIA director at the time of the attack, Richard Helms, in a 1984 interview. He said, everything possible was done to keep from the American public really the enormity of this attack on an American naval vessel. Since this is, for the agency's record, I don't think there can be any doubt that the Israelis knew exactly what they were doing. Any statement to the effect that they didn't know it was an American ship is nonsense. I mean, that's, that's pretty freaking clear. Um, you guys got a bunch of awards for you know for for what took place, including the Medal of Honor. Captain McGonagall received the Medal of Honor for for his actions, which is strange to take the story of someone receiving the Medal of Honor and not explain what happened. That was covered up in, in a naval shipyard. That's where he received his Medal of Honor, was in a shipyard, not at the White House, where <clears throat> he could be recognized for <clears throat> being the skipper of our, our ship and getting the Medal of Honor because it brings too much heat on. And 
Unfortunately, I think that uh, the captain was uh, between a real rock and a hard place. On one hand, he can be treated like a hero. On the other hand, he can, he can be treated like a zero. And he went with hero. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he didn't deserve it. I'm just saying that he clammed up, and it was years and years later, I don't know how many years later, he finally said, well, yeah, I think it was a, it was a planned attack. That was, I think there's a copy of his retirement speech. You can watch it online. I've watched it. Mm-hmm. And I think it was his retirement speech where he says, hey, we need to find out the truth. We need to tell the truth about mm-hmm. what actually happened. Yes, sir. Oh. He, he wouldn't even join the LVA. I tried for years to get him to join, but he says it's, it's too political uh, for him to get involved. And finally, he did join the association after years and years. Uh, which we were glad to see. Dean Rusk, who was Secretary of the State at the time, said, I was never, quote, I was never satisfied with the Israeli explanation. Their sustained attack to disable and sink liberty precluded an assault by an accident or some trigger-happy local commander. Through diplomatic channels, we refused to accept their explanations. I didn't believe them then, and I don't believe them now. The attack was outrageous. Um, you know, some of the things that you already talked about, there's a, there's a BBC documentary called dead in the water. It's, 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 you know, one of the things that it said is what you said earlier, Phil, which is, Hey, if the Israelis could get the Americans into this war in a big way, you know, that can really help us out against these Arabs is what Israeli was thinking. Mm -hmm. And these kind of things happen. Um, What is what do you guys do with the LVA now? What's what's the purpose? How can people help? Well, one of the things that we're still trying to do is get recognition for our 34 fallen shipmates. Um, we've tried over the years to get Congress to conduct a full and impartial investigation, and it's fallen on deaf ears. Um, right now, we've got uh, a resolution going forward. To, um, to ask for June 8th to be uh, declared as USS Liberty Remembrance Day. It should be a, a fairly simple thing for Congress to do. I mean, we have National Hot Dog Day and National you know, Ice Cream Day. Let, let's have a, a National USS Liberty Remembrance Day. Um, and not just one year, but every year, June 8th. Right. Um, so we're working on that. I've got a resolution in the state of New York going through the American Legion up there um, to have that presented through their channels. Um, I'm in the process of doing it in the state of Maryland. Um, I'm working with uh, former Senator Pete McCluskey to get uh, – a petition out to get signatures for people that will support the establishment of June 8th as USS Liberty Remembrance Day, and then present that to various legislators to uh, show them that, hey, the American public wants to know. They need to know. And, you know, if nothing else, you're, you're honoring the 34 men that gave the ultimate sacrifice 
um, back on June 8th, 1967. When, when you talk about some of the awards that were received, most every one of us that received any kind of an award, Purple Heart or Bronze Star, you know, the Congressional Medal of Honor, it was all done in private. There were no big ceremonies like you would normally expect for, you know, someone with that just came off the most decorated ship in the United States Navy since World War II. Um, and, you know, 95% of the American public is not even aware of it. You know, Jaco, excuse me, but he he said something very interesting about the American Legion, which uh, fires me up because uh, about four or five years ago, um, Glenn Oliphant and Ernie Gallo, our former president, were at the convention in the American Legion, and they wanted to get a booth and, and things like this, and they wouldn't allow it uh, for us to get a booth. So... Glenn Oliphant, he was uh, so disappointed and upset. He, he tore up his American Legion card right there, and he didn't throw it at anybody. He just sprinkled it right there, and the, the girl said, one of the organizers, he assaulted me, and they threw his ass in jail. Well, why wouldn't they let you have a booth? Because they said uh, the USS Liberty is non uh, is is not essential. We don't recognize you guys, and don't ever come back because you're banned from the American Legion for life. This this is from their national convention. Um, it's still in effect today um, that we can't have a booth. Uh, when he's talking about Ernie and and Glenn going to that national convention, they went there with the understanding that we had already paid our $1,000 entry fee. And they got there and were told that they hadn't received the check, and, and they hadn't received the check. So Ernie pulled out his credit card and said, I'll pay for it right now. We're here. We're, we want a booth. And they said, no, you can't do that. And then I think it got to be somewhat confrontational, um, and that's when you know, Glenn got upset, tore up his, you know, his membership card. And uh, we've tried in vain since then to get senior management in the American Legion National Organization to reinstate us so that we can have a booth there. That's how we tell our story. That's how we get other patriots to, you know, go back to their home states and say, hey, Let's let's try and do something in support of the USS Liberty. I wrote up a couple of years ago resolutions for every state in the union. This was done at the VFW um, National Convention, and I had a representative from from each state take one of these resolutions back for their legislators to consider and introduce in their state legislator later, um, and. I, I don't know that anything ever came of it. Um, and that's, that's the problem with a lot of this, trying to get people to stand up and, and say, hey, if you want our support, we'll support you, just like your audience today. If there's people out there that are willing to, you know, pick up the, the torch and run with it, 
I'll be more than happy to write up a resolution for any organization that they have and, and ask them to uh, support the establishment of the June 8th USS Liberty Remembrance Day. Do you guys have a website? Yes. Yes. And what's that? USSLibertyVeterans.org. Yeah. I think you <coughs> you take care of that, don't you, Joe? Uh, well, actually, it's uh, we have a webmaster for it. Oh, okay. That the one I take care of is USSLibertyVeterans.blog. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Uh, to to donate, uh, anybody out there that wants to help the Liberty Veterans continue on to doing what we're doing, we're a small organization now. A lot of the guys have already passed on. Uh, you know, they're well, those older guys. We just lost uh, Commander Lewis. He was 92, I think. Yeah. And he just died this year. And uh, a good man, a brave man. He's he's also in the uh, sacrificing liberty. And I think you're really going to get a good insight to what, what went on, Jocko, because it is uh, sacrificing liberty to me is probably the most interesting, uh, truthful documentary that's ever been done. In my view, I, I think you would probably agree. Yeah, I would. It's um, you've got eyewitness accounts being taken into account through uh, through the four different, you know, one hour disc. Um, so it's it's not a quick read. You gotta you gotta devote some time to it, but uh, it's certainly well worth going through it and uh, and hearing from. Probably what a half a dozen or so of us survivors, um, and uh, True News did an excellent job on that. I just uh, I can't say enough about how they uh, did their research, not just with with us, but with other uh, authors and uh, I guess senior politicians, so that. Uh, uh, it's, it's the most factual account that I, I'm aware of. Yeah, USS Liberty survivors are in a unique position in American history and U.S. Navy history. We're the only crew in U.S. Navy history that has the task of lobbying the DOD and Congress to investigate attack on our ship. And we, we don't have any experience at that. We don't know anybody who does, but we need help from people who do. We'd love to have a, uh, a professional approach us and, and offer his services. We can't pay him, we don't have any money, but we need, we need professional help in the lobbying and in, uh, in the legal, legal arena. I don't know, if, uh, I don't know if, uh, if there's any legal steps we can take. We were in military, we were uh, and it was our job to uh, to uh, go where we're supposed to go and do what we're supposed to do. But there were civilians on the ship too. Do you guys feel like there's been progress towards getting the truth out there? Because to me, I mean, when I hear about the USS Liberty now, I immediately kind of most people know sort of the underlying story that it was an attack. It was from Israel that you know the U.S. Navy lost a bunch of sailors they don't necessarily know how many but do you guys feel like there's progress been made in this story getting out there and the truth getting out there there's progress being made but not to the extent that people who, who can do something about it do something about it so what is it that 
what would be the the win? What would be victory for you all? I'm, I'm sitting in the winner's winner circle right now with you doing this. <laughs> I feel like a winner, and uh, I think these two gentlemen feel the same way. And I I want to mention my shipmates. Uh, they all know about this, and I'm sure they're going to download this and watch it. But a special thanks, uh, you know, to uh, Mo Schaefer and his wife Donna. He's a, <clears throat> the money man. He takes care of the money. <clears throat> Little we have. And uh, they have a ship store you can buy things from. And it's just uh, our way of trying to give, give back the real story. And in the last three or four years, Jocko, we've made more progress than we have in the last 55 because of, of uh, sacrificing liberty. And uh, now here we are with you. <laughs> and possibly Joe Rogan is going to get a call from you and say, hey, you better get these boys on. <laughs> I could try. That's, I know a, can. that's a long list <laughs> of people know, trying to go on <laughs> on, on Mr. Rogan's po- podcast. I can guarantee you that. Um, well, a win for me is a, a congressional investigation. Okay. Uh, complete and comprehensive, redundant to be sure, but it needs to be said, congressional investigation. But that's a two-edged sword because members of Congress – have refused to investigate the attack on our ship. War crimes is a U.S. statute. Accessory after the fact is a U.S. statute. Oh. So members of Congress who were in a position to conduct an investigation refused to, despite being lobbied by victims of those war crimes, might stand accused of being accessories after the fact. And I don't think accessories after the fact is covered under congressional immunity. So there's some scared yeah. Co- yeah. Congress people mm-hmm. out there. There, there. There's some statute of limitations on murder, mm. and none. And that's what ha- happened. They murdered these men and tried to murder us. I mean, you know, I, I, I call the FBI, the CIA, and I tell them, hey, I'm an eyewitness to murder, and they get all excited until <laughs> I tell them what it's all about. And they say, well, that's, that's uh, no, it's, never mind. That's already been investigated. We've never had an investigation except the, the phony uh, Board of Inquiry, and we got letters back from Congress, some of them in there that uh, I brought to show you. There's been multiple investigations. There's never been none. They're lying to us. We're eyewitnesses to, to what happened, and they're telling us that we've been, it's been a congressional investigation at least three or four times. There has never been a congressional investigation. They lie to us. What do you think they're telling the American people? Um, probably a good place to, to wrap it up. I mean, that, that sounds like we know what we want to do to, to move this thing forward with the congressional investigation, get the word out there. Let's make June 8th, you know, National Day of Remembrance for the USS Liberty. Um, Larry, just any closing thoughts from you? No, I, I just encourage your listeners to, um, you know, take what we've said today and if they have any interest at all in trying to support the Liberty, go to our website, um, contact us. You know, our contact information is on the website. And like I said, I'm willing to draft resolutions or um, petitions, whatever they want, for their organization to get signatures to take before their legislators and um, try and get support for this recognition for our fallen shipmates that uh, 
that should have happened 55 years ago. Um, Indeed. Uh, on, on our blog, there's a USSLibertyVeterans.blog. There's a tab that says, I think it's uh, help us out. And in that tab are a series, I think, four letters that you can write to. Uh, you can just fill in the blank and submit. One is calling for a uh, have a member of Congress send you a copy of the congressional investigations, and they can't uh-huh. do it. One is call- asking them to uh, contact the Congressional Research Service and ask them to uh, has the uh, U.S. government investigated the attack, and we got a response from one. I've been trying for years, and one finally actually asked the, the Congressional Research Service, and he said no. Another one asks for uh, Congress to allow their boilerplate responses to members, to constituents who write asking about the attack. Stop using Israeli talking points. Use USS Liberty survivors talking points. And uh, this easy way to, for them to get involved. And then when they get the responses, send them to us and we can draft a a response for them to, uh, to send. Yep, that that's uh, the old the old letter writing campaign. Yeah. yeah, let's get let's get them that way. Um, anything else, Joe? I think that's it. Phil, any well, closing thoughts? Uh, yes, uh, in closing, I, I encourage your listeners and, and watchers that all download this, share it with everybody, pass the word around, write your senators and congressmen, and let them know that the real deal is that you you've been lying about this all the time, and we know it. But they don't want to come back and tell them, tell everybody that they're liars anyway. I mean, it's going to be hard. I mean, the Congress and everything, it's going to take the people, people, your listeners, to help us out. People that, uh, that watch Sacrifice and Liberty, go to sacrificeandliberty.com. And uh, God bless you for having us on. You're, you're a good man, and all of you, I appreciate it so much. God bless you. And one thing I forgot to mention, since your blog is posted on your YouTube site, there's a comment section, and we'd, we'd be happy to enter into a dialogue with anybody on that, uh, on that comment section, whether they're pro-Israeli, uh, think they're pro-Israeli, or on the U.S. side. The comments will definitely be there. Okay, good. <laughs> we look forward to it. Well, uh, thanks for coming. You know, the, these, these, the, the conjecture and the mystery around all these events, they, they've been around for a while, but um, I think there's one thing that there's absolutely no mystery about and one thing that cannot be disputed, and that's the courage and the valor and the sacrifice of the brave sailors of the USS Liberty. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, thank you all personally for your service and your sacrifice, and we won't forget what you did for the country and nor will we ever forget the memory of your 34 shipmates who gave their lives and who embodied the Navy ethos of honor, courage, and commitment. We commit to not forgetting their sacrifice. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Thank sir. you. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks. Thank you. And with that, Joe and Larry and Phil have left the building echo did you know anything about the uss liberty prior to today oh uh, i have heard things um not at the end of the day no let's say there's level five knowledge i was at level 0.5 mm-hmm. so you knew it existed yeah but you didn't know too much about it yeah like when you i when you said 
that they were coming on and you said the USS Liberty, I was like, okay, I was like, okay. It wasn't like just in the dark. It wasn't a shot in the dark for me. No. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's too bad more people don't know about it. And I'm glad that they were able to come on and, and share the story. And it just, you know, just really, it is kind of crazy. And I think we've done, I've done some, you know, obviously we've done some podcasts about, well, about McNamara for sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a, I don't like McNamara. I don't like the way he led. I don't like the way he did things. And so this is just like another nail in the coffin for McNamara from my perspective to to know that, you know, he was one of the people that allowed this stuff to happen. And, and LBJ, the same thing. Mm. President Johnson, same thing. You know, pr- President Johnson... It just shows you the level of kind of corruption and ineptitude that the leadership had. And and what's, I don't really, what really bothers me about it is, you know, if someone's not capable and they end up in a position, you're like, you know, if, if, if Echo, if you're supposed to be doing something and you don't have the capability of doing it, I, I'm probably not, I'm not going to be mad at you, you know, I'm not going to get mad at you. Mm-hmm. But if you're capable but you're doing things a certain way for because you think you're smarter than everybody else or you mm-hmm. think you can outsmart the the American people or you think you can outsmart, you know, your your boss or whatever and you you you're trying to maneuver, I'm going to have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have more of a problem with I'm actually going to have a lot more of a problem with someone that's just hey, hey Echo had this idea, this is what he thought was going to happen. It didn't go that way. Okay, you know, got it. Uh, he's not capable of doing it. He didn't understand the situation. Like, he can't get mad at someone's lack of ability to do something. But if Echo was smart and you were in there and you made decisions that actually made things go a certain way, that's going to make me mad. And that's how I feel mm-hmm. about McNamara and Johnson. And So, there you go. So, what? Okay, so government's claiming mistaken identity. They're claiming what like what exactly what's the explanation there are several explanations the main thing that what the what the government says i shouldn't say it's all the government because not all the government says this the the cover-up at the time was hey it was mistaken identity it was a you know unfortunate incident the 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 israelis said sorry we're carrying on with our mission there's two there's two real explanations one of them is that hey, the Israelis didn't want Americans listening, so they attacked the ship. And there's one that is the Israelis wanted, they wanted America to enter the war, and they knew that America would enter the war if one of the American ships was attacked by these Arab forces. Mm-hmm. And so they tried to do it in such a way that, because I mean, you wouldn't think the Israelis would do that. I right. mean, that's like crazy, right? Yeah. Those are our actual allies. So right. how could this happen? It must have been the, you know, it was obviously the Arabs. There's no survivors. Right. The ship is sunk and gone. Gotcha. We better go pay the Arab nations back for sinking our ship. Right. So is it out of the question that people do that kind of thing? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. False flag attacks, like that's a literal false flag attack. So, and look, I don't really even know how debatable it even is. Uh, you know, like this is 
the Israelis have admitted that they attacked the ship. Mm-hmm. They've said, hey, it was a mistake. We're sorry, it wasn't that long, it wasn't that bad, we didn't shoot up. There's there's some where they directly conflict with, no, we didn't shoot up the lifeboats, the mm. lifeboats, they say they didn't do that. So they, they kind of claim it, they kind of downplay it and claim it as a mistake. That's mm. sort of the cover-up. The cover-up is downplay it, it was a mistake. Mm. The reality is at least, at least admit the full extent of what happened, mm. and then on top of that, was it intentional? Yeah. Did you actually want to do this to drag Americans into this war? And then if you wanted to do that and the people that called off the support to the vessel are Americans, you knew about it. Right. So that's why these guys are calling for a full congressional investigation, a con- congressional inquiry to figure out exactly what happened so people can be held accountable. And not only so people can be held accountable, but so you can look back and say, hey, here's the mistakes that we made. Mm-hmm. We put too much power in this position. We we l- allowed our allies to do too much. We didn't run through the chain of command. Like there's a bunch of things that you can learn from it. And to not break it down with a inquiry like that and find out what actually happened. I mean, a seven day inquiry, I mean, Phil brought in a stack of papers. Yeah. He's got all kinds of information about this. Yeah. You couldn't even cover that information in seven day inquiry. So. Yeah, that's it. You kind of, in a way, draw the line in the sand when you start like lying and then telling people to be like, hey, you're not allowed to talk about this or whatever. That's like, okay, no. And even that, I, you know, as I said on the podcast, there are some things for national security where this is what happened and you can't talk about it anymore. Hey, all the SOG guys weren't allowed to talk about the secret war for 20 years. Yeah. That's what actually happened. Mm-hmm. They signed a paper and said they couldn't talk about it. Those are cl- that's classified information, you're not allowed to talk about it. Mm-hmm. What's, what makes it disturbing in this one is it doesn't seem like the national security in a straightforward manner was in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. What was in jeopardy was the relationship with Israel, the, po- the political standing of, because yeah, yeah. if, let's face it, if the America would have found out that somehow our own government was involved in an attack on one of our own ships, like that's game over for the entire administration. Yeah. So what are they gonna do? Hey, don't say anything to anybody mm. to protect their own ass. And this is not beyond a guy like Johnson and not beyond a guy like McNamara. Mm. Yeah, so. These politicians that think they're smart. Um, horrible stuff. So uh, if you want to support them, you can go to USS Liberty Vets, Liberty Veterans, USSLibertyVeterans.org or USSLibertyVeterans.blog. That's where you can go to support them. If you want to get a bunch of more information about it, there's a, a movie that Phil pointed out, Sacrificing Liberty. So check out that movie. Also, Phil's written a couple books. One of them called Holocaust on the High Seas by Phil Turney. The other one is called Erasing the Liberty, the battle to keep alive the memory of Israel's massacre on the USS Liberty. So there's two books you can pick up that were, were written by Phil Turney, who you heard talking today. As far as the podcast goes, as far as you go, really. Mm-hmm. If you want to support the podcast, you want to support yourself, check out check out some jockofuel.com. Yeah, it's true. Finally, you have some healthy supplements, mm-hmm. not with the uh, 
negative side effects. The negative side effects, yep. Finally, oh, what what was it? What's the contest we got going? We got some contests. Oh, It'll probably be over I, by now. But I don't know. It's like the battle of battle the battle of the flavors. Yeah, battle of the flavors. We're giving someone a year's worth of go. What is that? One go a day? You think? Sure. That's a lot of go, man. <laughs> yes, sir. that's, that's a, a lot, lot of go. go. That's a lot of go. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, yes. Also, yes. Yeah, some good tasting protein. This is all stuff that is going to keep us really on the path. Really? I've mm. been on the path. We had a birthday party this past weekend. Yeah, no, I didn't make it. Slipped off the Sorry path a little bit. What'd some, you what'd you do? What was some the, cupcakes. Cupcakes. I don't like cupcakes. Matter of fact, I don't really even like cake. No cake, huh? No, okay. No. What's the jam besides? Dry. Like? Tastes dry to me. So what's your jammer? Actually I already know this. I know the pigs in a blanket situation. That's I know you like one. that. That's a good one. But what about dessert? Oh, yeah. uh chocolate I'm, uh mint chocolate chip ice cream. Yes. We did have that too, yeah, by the way. Yeah. Did you buy that in case though. I showed up? Is that a little <laughs> trying to tempt me? Trying to bring me down? No, my kids like that. Trying one to too. negatively impact my life. Hey, That's man. what you're doing. You know? I would have just had a milk, a mint milk. Yep. Which is equivalent. No, but you do a good slash bad job of eating uh, these cakes and whatnot if the kids are around and they want to have something with you. What do you mean it, I do a good bad slash bad job? Or because a, you do a good job bonding with the kids. Uh, but meanwhile, you're sleeping on the path. It's like, what do you call it? A tactical. Uh, little catch 22. A little tactical sacrifice yeah. for a strategic win. Yep. Yeah, and then you're teaching your kids how to eat cake. I know. There's a, there's a there's a saying in the, in the I don't know, it must, might be the whole Navy, but it might be the whole military, but we'd say, like, let them eat cake, you know? So, the, so we call the officers cake eaters. Oh, damn. Okay. So I heard that before. Cake eater. So I wouldn't eat cake. It was like a thing. Like I wouldn't yeah. eat cake. Kind of like now I don't eat donuts. Right, right. Like out of the principle. Yeah, just yeah. out of principle. I would probably never be able to have a donut again for no. the rest of my life. Because no, there's gonna be someone with a 600 millimeter telephoto lens, and I'll be on the cover of the freaking <laughs> National Enquirer. Jock was a liar. <laughs> yep, it's true. Very possible. So no donuts over here, but we will have some milk. We will have some joint warfare. Some cr- super krill. Jockofield.com. You can get the stuff at the vitamin shop. You can get the drinks at Wawa. We got some, um, we got ready to drink protein shakes coming, yeah. which is a kind of a game changer, right? When you just roll into a store, you're hungry. Yeah. You need that. You're, you're starting to go catabolic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you need that little hitter. Yeah. Plus, it's a perfect mix. You know, yeah. it's insured the perfect yeah. mix. Yeah. It's That's just true. good to go. So, we got those coming shortly. So, yep. Jockofield.com. Check it out if you want to check it out. Some good stuff on there. Also, American-made stuff. American-made denim. Some hunting stuff coming. Yeah, yeah. You Let's face it, it, the hype around that is kind of significant. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, it's a big deal to make stuff in America. I actually saw somebody commented on one of the YouTube videos and said, "Yeah, but what do you do when stuff's made in America, but the components are from overseas? Our components are not from overseas. No, sir. Our components are from America." Yep. The the materials made in America, grown, the cotton. Cotton. The components for the components is made in yeah, America. Yeah, that's what we're saying. So, yeah, when you go to Origin USA, you are supporting not just Origin USA. You are supporting the entire, the entire supply chain that runs down to the fields in Texas, the fields in South Carolina, the factories in South Carolina, the mills in South Carolina. It's, it, it, you're feeding the entire system by... Supporting Origin USA. So check out originusa.com. And you're not supporting uniquely affordable labor. Oh, slave labor. That's, wait, wait is, that's is, that, is that the new euf- euphemism? Uniquely no. supportable? Uh, I think that's what 
they called it on the thing that I watched mm. uniquely affordable labor. Yeah, we call that slave labor. Yes. That's what that's called. Yeah. And we don't do it. Yep. We have awesome workers, American workers that are doing a great job and get and have skill yep. and bring it to the table every day and work their ass off to make these products. So there you go. OriginUSA.com. Check that out. Also, you want to represent. You want to wear? We got some good shirts. We're having, we have a new shirt. We have all new stuff coming. Oh, soon. really? Like, Very soon. Discipline oh, like, equals freedom. Shirts. Hoodies. New designs? New designs. Oh, really? You went ham, huh? Well, well you know, I, I figure that we all kind of wanted a little bit of an update. Check. You know, still still uh, consistent, I would say, but a good one. Anyway, jockostore.com. That's where you can get your shirts and hats and hoodies and merch if you want to represent. It's a good spot. Oh, look at that guy with the merch. It's true. It's What's true. the, has the, has the latest shirt locker shirt that I designed on the market yet? Is it out there? Yeah. So people had it, have had it delivered. March, yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of cool that they have no idea what's coming and it just shows up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it might be super dope. Yeah. In this and case, it is. Recently, apparently, according to the field, so every once in a while, those who have my phone number or on Twitter or the gram, they, um, they'll send me a picture of them with the shirt on and they, they will say, you nailed it with this one or whatever. Yeah. And I've been getting a lot of those recently for the past three months. Dang. Yeah. Three months of consistent goodness, consistent from, goodness. from EC. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, check out the Shirt Locker there. Uh, subscribe to this podcast. Don't, don't forget about Jocko Underground, jockounderground.com. We've, we've been doing a lot of Q&A on there only because we have a place where people that are members of jockounderground.com can email. So we've been going through all those questions. And, uh, yes, at some point, we backed off doing Q and A on this podcast, probably because the questions were overwhelming in numbers. So now we kind of narrow that down. That's one of the things that we're doing on JockOnTheGround.com. If you got a question, you can email it there. It costs eight dollars and eighteen cents a month. That's how we keep it up and running. That's also our escape hatch. If we get banned or censored or deplatformed for whatever reason, and if you can't afford that, we still want you in the game. You can just email assistance at Underground. At Jock, assistance at jockounderground.com. So check that out. Yep. Also, YouTube. We do have a YouTube channel, video yeah. version of the podcast. Yeah, check that one. Also, Origin USA, Origin HD. Yeah. That's a good YouTube channel as well. That you is a good follow YouTube along channel. How an American company from top to bottom is run. Mm-hmm. Very interesting now. Yep. yep. Uh, psychological Warfare. You can check out Flip, Flipside Canvas. We got, we got Dakota. Just, just, out there getting after it in 74 different directions, which is awesome. Yeah. He's doing all kinds of stuff. He's got a gym. He's a firefighter. Mm-hmm. He's a pilot, a helicopter pilot. So Dakota Meyer, he's got another business, which is called flipsidecanvas.com, and you can get cool stuff to hang on your wall there. And for books, look, the books I just mentioned, um, Erasing Liberty by Phil Turney. We got his other book, Holocaust on the High Seas. There's also a book called Remember the Liberty by Philip Nelson and Ron Kukal, which I, Ron put this podcast together today. I mentioned him, so you can check out his book. Also, speaking of doing a bunch of different things, we got Jocko Publishing, and Jocko Publishing has published some books, published Mikey and the Dragons, published Way of the Warrior Kid, three and four. Also, Holly McKay, she wrote a book called 
only cry for the living. And right now, so she's been in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. She's a war reporter. Right now, she's on the ground in Ukraine. She was in Kiev today. So check out Holly McKay. And if you want to support her, get her book, Only Cry for the Living. You can get that at jockopublishing.com. Or you can get it on Amazon or whatever. So then you got all the books that I've written. Uh, I think there's some kind of a special coming out on Final Spin. Some kind of a special on the Amazon. Uh, Leadership Strategy and Tactics. You got all my books. Check those out if you want to. Appreciate it. Echelon Front. That's my leadership consulting company where we solve problems through leadership. Leadership is the solution. We just sold out the Texas muster. Um, So... If you want to come to a muster, if you want to go to any of our events, just go to echelonfront.com and check out the details of what we do, how you can utilize us to help your company. We also have Extreme Ownership Academy, extremeownership.com. Speaking of asking me questions, come on there and literally ask me a question. Mm-hmm. I'll be on a Zoom call on Monday and you can ask me whatever you want. I'll be on there the next Monday. I'll be there on Wednesday. I'll be there on Friday. Come and check it out. There's a bunch of courses you can take. It's just, it's a really powerful platform. Check out extremeownership.com if you want to help in your life. Look, it's not like, oh, you're a leader and you're in charge of 1,400 people or you're a leader, you're in charge of seven people. You don't have to be in charge of it. You're in charge of your own life. And if you want to learn about how to better lead your own life, go to extremeownership.com. Yeah, I feel like, and this might be just me, could be everybody, but I feel like when you hear the word leader, it kind of comes from when you're a kid and it's like, follow the leader, like me, the boss, everyone follow me kind of a thing, Mm -hmm. physically, Mm -hmm. like actually literally follow me, whatever. But as it turns out, it's like essentially the ability to make the right calls and the right decision in every situation, even if you're by yourself, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's like, it's almost like, leader might not even be the most best word to say it that'll land on your brain the way the reality is almost like learn how to live your life in the best possible way yeah check results oriented if you want to live your life in the best possible way you want to learn how to make decisions what decisions to make because that's where your life is a series of decisions yep how are you doing that? How are you mitigating risk? How are you figuring out where to take chances? How are you figuring out where you need to reinforce certain parts of your life? How are you figuring out how you're gonna interact with this person that has a huge part in your life, whether you want them to or not? All kinds of things to learn. That's all extremeownership.com. If you wanna help service members, active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, everybody that has served, if you wanna help them, go to Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee, she's got an incredible charity organization. If you wanna donate or you wanna get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also, don't forget about horses and heroes. No, heroes and horses. I always get that one backwards. The horses come first in my mind. The heroes should come first. Heroesandhorses.com. Micah Fink doing awesome stuff with his charity organization. Echo and I, if you wanna hear more from us, then you can go on the social media. Of course, Surgeon General warning, watch out for the algorithm because it's getting ready to grab you by the throat and try and drag you in there. Echoes at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to Joe, Larry, and Phil for your service and sacrifice. And thanks to all the sailors of the USS Liberty, especially those 34 brave souls who sacrificed their lives 
for their shipmates and thanks to all the rest of the sailors out there from the world's finest navy that are on the high seas 365 days a year protecting the cause of freedom around the world and thanks to the rest of our military that fights on the land and in the air to protect our way of life and also to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, all first responders who protect us here at home. Thank you for what you do. And to everyone else, you never know what you're going to run into. You never know what's going to happen. You never know who is going to attack you. And these guys talked about it today. They were prepared. They were ready. They were vigilant. So when something unfolds, you are prepared like they were to behave like they did the brave sailors of the USS Liberty and don't ever give up. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.